Grinch is inside the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Hugh Grant on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Welcome to the sixth episode of the 13th season of Weird Scenes and Tide of the Goldmine. You're essentially a guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze, virago, vituperativeness, and long-suffering victim of all sorts of life bullshit. I can say that about myself as well lately. As we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight... Hugh John Mungo Grant, yeah, I love the Mungo part, was born at the start of September 1960, like Motorhead, live at Hammersmith, London, to a Highlander-turned-carpet salesman. Highlander? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> he was a Scottish Highlander. <laughs> there can be only one. <laughs> yeah, right? Ah, a big yell for the charge. <laughs> uh, turned carpet salesman and a music and language teacher. She apparently taught French, Latin, and music, which seems a hell of a lot for one person. Grant was a rugby player. He played 1st 15th Division, which appears to get international televised coverage, as well as cricket and, quote, football, a.k.a. soccer for you Americans, in school, and studied English literature before getting into the drama program at Oxford. Strangely enough, given that background, he turned down an offer to go for a Ph.D. at Art History at London University thereafter. Don't ask me, they must be a lot less uptight and specialized over there. Here you can't get a job as a fucking garbage man with a B.A., which I can personally attest to. <laughs> He got an offer to star in some forgotten Mel Gibson movie back in 1984, but couldn't do it because he needed to work local theater to get his equity card first. His first major movie role was the asinine Merchant Ivory stinker Maurice, and lucked into his first major part as the Lord of the Manor come hero of Lair of the White Worm, which we discussed in our Ken Russell show. After a handful of decidedly minor TV roles and such, he then wound up in our Roman Polanski show's Bitter Moon, and once he landed a main role in the strangely popular Four Weddings and a Funeral, his career really took off. A bit of a curmudgeon, he's apparently something of a perfectionist on set, and is well known for his embattled relations with the press, in specific the tabloid press, and let's be honest, he's right, they suck. He was a major force behind that lawsuit against them and Rupert Murdoch over the phone tapping by the gossip rags. Remember that whole hoo-ha? Yeah. And in another plus to his personal integrity, he's been more or less on the right side of history, politically speaking, offering regular support in word and deed to the liberal Democrats and labor, despite claiming that he has no particular allegiances in that area. He did spur a lot of action against Brexit and the Tories as well. He also doesn't buy into the bullshit about Hollywood and stardom, which wins him extra points in my book. In that respect, he's more in the Clark Gable school of show up on time, hit your marks, and say your lines. And of course, he's notorious for his ill-advised public blowjob from L.A. hooker Divine Brown, as well as his 13-year relationship with the stunning Elizabeth Hurley, who actually produced two of his films, and we'll get to all that in due course. So again, like I said, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Yeah, yeah, before he... Begin on our on our ride here. Yeah, Hill of Eyes is you know, you're you're Hugh Grant, you know, and instantly recognizable, a big name at the time. Even at, he's sixty two. All right, he's starting to show a little bit, but yeah, but he still looks good. He still looks good, but back in when this happened, he was an incredibly handsome guy, still youngish, mm-hmm. and and. <laughs> And in public, man, he doesn't even like go, okay, I'm going to go take some hook into a hotel room or a dark alleyway or no, something. No, in a car. In a yeah. car. And, 
<laughs> and it's like, go, go, to, go to an amp or go, go. In fucking L.A. You know, nobody you must, walks out. Everybody sees you. Everybody knows who you are. <laughs> you must know people that can hook you up with a nice lady. Come on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying in a nice way. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I was like, where's your decision-making process going there? You know? well, maybe know. he really but, is like his character. 48 hours notice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of like um, I was a major bad decision. And it took him a long time to live that down. It was up there with, oh, who's the guy now? He's in Wham. Uh, George Michael with the uh, public bathroom situation. Yeah. And Pee Wee Herman, uh, Paul Rubens, <laughs> jerking off in the porno theater. <laughs> There was somebody else who did that too. Who else? Oh gosh, there was some. Yeah, yeah. I mean, bad decision. You know, you you don't have porn. You don't have the internet. You know. <laughs> and again, the thing is, they're in a space where people not only are they recognizable pretty much anywhere, but everybody knows you where they were at. You know, they're like you see them in the neighborhood. They know who this person is, and they're doing this in public. I'm okay. <laughs> I mean, at least George Michael, I know that's part of the gay scene, or it was, was, but, you know, the other two, like, what the hell are you guys thinking? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird kind of transgression allure kind of thing. Yes, that's probably what it was. <laughs> like, yeah, ooh, this is naughty. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I can see Hugh doing with that accent. <laughs> oh, this would be rather naughty. It's naughty. You know, I've like, seen photographs of that. There's no Darlene Love lookalike. Either, but, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking um, that too. I didn't want to say nothing. <laughs> I was like, she looked kind of rough. Uh huh. <laughs> you know, it's an ebony girl. Like, I'm nothing against that. But, uh, yeah, nothing wrong uh, with that, but this one is like, really? She was rough. <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm, I'm sure, like, you want me to use con? No, 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 Darlene. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of the show is not going to be like that. So, we're starting out with. I guess he was into the equivalent of rough trade, <laughs> the street equivalent. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the first film he did was something called Privileged, where he was actually credited as Huey Grant. But the first one that anybody knows about is 1987's Maurice. Yeah. <sighs> oh, shit. It's another Merchant Ivory film about gay guys struggling with their conflicted sexuality in repressed Victorian England. This time it's some nobody as the titular character who has a gay but supposedly unconsummated relationship with Grant in school before Grant breaks it off out of fear of being, well, outed, and he has to move on to the pool boy or wherever. I tuned out after Grant with the proceedings that was long and boring enough. Crowley's great beast himself, Simon Callow, Daniel Elliott of our Jamie Lee Curtis and Eddie Murphy shows Trading Places, Frenzy and the Omens Billy Whitelaw all appear. Somehow they got Gandhi himself, Ben Kingsley of Uwe Boll's Blood Rain, Iron Man 3, and Death and the Maiden from a Rowan Polanski show to appear as well. It's an early Grant picture, and as likely noted earlier, his British films almost exclusively cast him as fey, foppish, less yeah. than masculine, or as in this case, blatantly gay. It wasn't until the absurd Four Weddings and a Funeral and Love Actually that he began a new and more cross-continental career as a sort of wildian or a coward-esque naughty public schoolboy mm. with a winning personality and biting wit, so effectively you can forget the entire first half of his career unless that's your thing. Case very much in point. So what's your take? Well, there was a time around this time, I guess. It was uh, 1987. Yeah. That that Merchant Ivory pictures were all over the place. They, oh, they yeah. were the equivalent of uh, feature film versions of uh, Masterpiece, Masterpiece Theater, you know, and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, there's a big Downton Abbey 
uh, audience, mm-hmm. you know, probably because they're itching for these, you know, they don't make these things anymore. And I think they burned themselves out. They were, they were Some of them were long. Some of them were very long. <laughs> and they did a lot of them, those two guys. Jeez. They did a lot of them. Uh, you know, uh, what was it, 30 of them or something like that? It's crazy. There were quite a few, and they were all long. So, mm-hmm. But they were they were usually based on... Uh, Jane well, Austen. Jane Austen, or well-known novels, you know, British novels. Uh, Maybe the Brontes. Uh, historical, you know, historical things. But you're right about something. A lot of their pictures... Did, I mean, they were very nice looking, like Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. You know, they, their movies took great care in cinematography and presentation and costuming. God, I remember watching the Academy. I always watch the Academy Awards. And um, somebody would sweep the Oscars like remains of the day. They would sweep the Oscars or they would sweep everything but the major awards, like costuming you know uh, uh, director photography you know art direction you know blah 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 you know you could not have grown up in the uh late 80s or 90s maybe even late 90s yeah without without hearing merchant ivory or seemingly turning around every few months and there's a new picture which kind of blew my mind because they were so long so it takes a long time to make a movie exactly and they were depressing and they're always the exact same plot i mean yes it was usually about repressed gay men but there was a lot of repressed straight people in these as well and that's all it was and nobody ever consummated things nothing ever worked out it was just kind of depressing turgid and overlong but they had these you know elaborate if you want to call it well folks i thought they were all kind of gauzy and it was not really my style uh, almost like a baroque chick but not that enjoyable yeah, but right. it was kind of like watching zeffirelli except that zeffirelli like putting grubby dirty looking people in fancy outfits and costumery this one here put people that were clean and very british and very proper and you know, look sort of upper class-ish in these boring costume dramas. And they were just over and over and over again. There were people who were conjured by these damn things. And the rest of us were just like, oh, Christ, another one. <laughs> oh, no, it's a good way to, yeah, it's a perfect way to say it. Yeah. It seemed like people were, were just conjured by it. They were just like so in love with this, mm-hmm. lack of a better word, uh, and you get people like <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. That's all they did for years. And Hugh Grant was another yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> to the extent he didn't actually do as many as you think, but you know, they, I don't know. He was associated with it. Happened to James Willby, I didn't really investigate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Hugh is is pretty much recognizably you know second build. Funny thing is, a lot of gay men in this film. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got Rupert Graves, Denzel Melliot, Barry Foster. Mm-hmm. You know, playing. No, not all those characters were gay, yeah. folks. But I'm saying that there were a lot of gay actors in the movie, and whether at that time, whether they were openly gay or not, I have no idea. But yeah, it was still a little dicey around that time because we had just gotten right. out of the AIDS crisis, and people were kind of nervous about that subject. But it was getting open. It was it was definitely a, a crossover period. White mischief? Did you see that? I did not see that one. You know, I don't want to be unkind to the film because I saw it many years ago. It was directed by Michael Radford. Uh, well, we mentioned in our uh, Burton show, because he directed 1984, mm-hmm. the Burton, um, John Hurt film. Yes. And uh, a lot of interesting people in this. Greta Scacchi, she was a thing at one time. Charles Dance, uh, Joss Acklin, Murray Head, who who went up. One Night in Bangkok. <laughs> one Night in Bangkok. Yeah, he started out back in the late 60s, early 70s in pop art movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, was kind of. 
not really popular. He didn't cross over. But he was a recognizable to... character actor in these sort of films. Yeah, yeah, yes. As he got older, he started popping up in these things. And actually, he had a – what the hell was that? What? That Broadway show. Chess. Chess. Yeah, that's where when that Bangkok came from. Yeah, he had a, a huge career revival. Which was done by Bjorn and Benny of ABBA. <laughs> they were trying to break out well, of something yeah, else. Yeah, then I think Sondheim also was involved with something yeah, yeah. like that. It was kind of weird. Um, yeah, I, I, I saw it years ago, but as I said, I don't really want to uh, comment on it because it's been so long, and I was unable to see it again for this show. So in 1988, The Lair of the White Worm, and we covered this one in our Ken Russell show. Dracula's Bram Stoker is ostensibly sourced for this oddly Lovecraftian, or more precisely, the far more boys' adventure-oriented Robert E. Howard doing his variant of the Cthulhu mythos, and typically highly sexually charged and loaded bit of nonsense from lovable iconoclast Russell, which takes Grant and throws him together with future Doctor Who Peter Capaldi and former adamant video vixen and lady friend Amanda Donahoe, and shows us just why the similarly sexually overcharged Ant was with this girl in the first place. Apparently, Capaldi is an archaeologist, unearthing relics from the days of Bodica, on the farm of his impossibly irritating lady friend, a Sammy Davis, he's literally, and it's spelled wrong, it's spelled with an I instead of like Sammy Davis Jr., whose whining and weird chipper bounciness combined to make her utterly intolerable. Grant is the local landed gentry who becomes the de facto lead of the film. His sister, Catherine Oxenberg, is reasonably fetching, and the whole thing actually revolves around Donahoe, a kinky bitch of a decadent dom <laughs> who devours pretty much everyone in the cast, male or female, in any way you choose to interpret that. She's supposedly the high priest of the long-forgotten ancient snake god whose temple or resting place this area is, and she's got a thing against Grant, whose family originally bound the being in question ages ago. As typical for Russell, the sex is conflated with weird, paganistic, and hallucinogenic imagery, the likes of which you only find otherwise in the works of Cradle of Filth cover man, Nunsploitation Guy, and I believe satanic sluts impresario Nigel Wingrove. Yes. Russell fans can expect something along the lines of a far more populist and arguably entertaining adventure take on where he was going with Gothic. And Donahoe, holy shit, if you haven't seen this one, go do so immediately. Even if you're not a fan of Russell, Capaldi, or Grant, Donahoe makes the picture, which is already pretty far out and quite enjoyable. What's your take? Yeah, I always liked her. Actually, I did a uh, Q and A. I did a Q and A, and 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 she was there. Right. I did a. You're not gonna believe this one. So I did. I did a fright night Q and A. <laughs> but at the time, Amanda was the um, the gay girlfriend in real life of the woman who was in fright night. The first. Oh, Amanda Beers. Yes. Really? I didn't know that. Okay. And so she was, they were just hanging out. Mm-hmm. She was hanging out with Amanda Beers, and I just first, you know, seeing Amanda Beers, I didn't know she was gay either, you know. Hey, <laughs> that's cool. And then, you know, like, who's this? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, she's not here. She's just, like, with me. It's Amanda Donahoe. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. Yeah. She was you know, something else. <laughs> she was still great looking. And Very not even nice. just talking about the looks. She's sexually overtook. Like I said, there's a reason that she was Adam Ant's ex-girlfriend, if anybody knows yeah. anything about Adam Ant. These yeah. two were, like, you know, oversexed, which is why I love Adam Ant so much. <laughs> but, yeah, she's something else. So go ahead. Yeah, that was a very interesting conversation I had. I spoke to them together, and you know, th- things happen though when 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 you, when the least expected. I was supposed to interview, oh, gosh, which Diablo was in the Bond movie, The Living Daylights? Uh, that was Mariam. Mariam, right? Supposed to interview Mariam, and then she goes, "My sister Olivia's here. Can she do it too?" I'm like, uh, "Okay." 
<laughs> Quick check, you know, Conan the Destroyer, yes. a couple other things. But, you know, it was like awkward city. But luckily the audience saved me there because they saw everything else she saw, she had done. <laughs> Any questions? And they were mostly for the, you know, the sister. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I met her and she was still gorgeous. Uh, she signed something from Conan the Destroyer for me. I'm talking about Olivia. Yeah, yeah, she was there this weekend. Really? Okay. Yeah, they were both supposed to be there, but only only she showed up. Miriam canceled the last minute. Mm-hmm. Depends on where she's coming from, I guess. Yeah, this is a terrific movie, Lair of the White Worm. And I can't add really to anything you've already said about wacky, wacky film. For, for a while, the only people that would give Ken Russell money, which is strange, mm-hmm. was Vestron Pictures. Yes. Vestron Video. Everyone well knows that logo. From the VHS days, VHS tape days, and Vestron were funding some filmmakers like Ken Rothel. He did a number of pictures for them before he hit a wall with things like Salome and that were excessive even for him. Yeah. But I love that period. That's actually why, if you listen to our Ken Russell show, we aren't yeah. really talking about his '70s stuff. We're talking about his '80s stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do. We, yeah. We do yeah. touch on it, of course. Yeah. But uh, when I was specifically sitting there, let's talk about Tommy and Listomania. Now we're talking about horror, and we're talking about gothic, and we're talking about you know Larry the White Worm and things like that. Uh, what was the one? Crimes of Passion. Yes. I mean, you know, some really interesting stuff in Salome's Last Dance. Mm-hmm. So anyway. The next one I saw was The Lady and the Highwayman, which is actually a TV movie. ITV director Robert Howe shows, like, The Baron, The Champions, The Protectors, The Zoo Gang, The Avengers, and The New Avengers from our British cult television, Tony Curtis, and Avengers shows, and Twins of Evil, Legend of Hell House, Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry, and Escape to Witch Mountain from our Hammer, Roddy McDowell, Peter Fonda, and Donald Pleasant shows. Gives us an interesting but failed attempt at recreating the three and four Musketeers movies from our Oliver Reed show for television. Michael York of those very films and our Whoopi Goldberg shows A Night in Camelot once again portrays a somewhat hapless king. <laughs> Lizette Anthony of the Dark Shadows Revival series from our Dan Curtis show is the hapless ingenue. Dynasty's Emma Sams is the scheming bitch. Grant is the Dick Turpin crossed with Zorro or Robin Hood named Silverblade. Liz Fraser of the Carry On and Confessions films and How's New Avengers pal Gareth Hunt also of Return of the Saint cameos. As do Robert Morley of Who Has Killing the Great Chess of Europe and Scavenger Hunt from our George Siegel, Jackie Bissick, and Richard Benjamin shows. Ian Bannon of Fright, Doomwatch, and our Sean Cameron shows The Offense. Oliver Reed, who we did a whole show on, does a Klaus Kinski-style walk-on as an evil prosecutor. And Claire Bloom from our Richard Burton show's Spy Who Came In From The Cold. It's pretty damn silly, and Grant offered this as the one film he'd love to erase from his resume, mostly due to his goofy Renaissance-style hat and pageboy wig. The fact is he'd done much worse films than this, though the low TV movie budget and bloodless, sexless nature of Sam do leave it feeling somewhat pointless. So, did you see this one? Yes, I did. Um... I mean, there's more interesting stuff going behind the scenes than on screen. Definitely. There was Barbara Cartland was a huge popular uh, romance novelist. She did a lot of period stuff. She did like, you know, four, uh, what was it, Du Maurier? Definitely. Yeah, that that, that novelist. And very costumey. You know, he, yeah, like a Harlequin romance. It was before Fabio started like getting his nose ghostwritten for him when he was still a cover model. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that, that kind of thing. But it was directed by John Howe or Hugh, depending on how you how you want to say it. <laughs> how you want to say it. You know, a Hammer veteran. He did the Reptile among among other pictures. Mm-hmm. Produced by Albert Fennell, one of the original producers on The Avengers, mm-hmm. and Sir Lou Grade, who threw money in at everything. Mm-hmm. Interesting cast. But yeah, he looks. <laughs> 
He looks mighty un uncomfortable in this film, Hugh Grant. Yeah, and, uh, that's true. He would do. He would bounce for a couple of years between a couple of uh, television productions, not too many, mm -hmm. and theatrical films. So I did not see Impromptu where he plays Chopin. I don't know if you did. Yeah, I didn't see Impromptu either. Okay. So 1992, Bitter Moon. Peter Coyote of our Brian De Palma show's Femme Fatale is a pervy cripple who pimps then-stunning wife and real-life wife of director Ron Polanski, who he had devoted an entire show to, including this film, Emmanuel Seigneur, out to married strangers like fellow cruise ship passenger Hugh Grant in full beta mode so he can hear and relate what went down in true cuckold style, presumably to entice new victims like Grant. And as it happens, his prudish wife, Kristen Scott Thomas, of our De Palma show's Mission Impossible as well. He relates in flashback his own relationship with Senye, which gets pretty hot and horny, not to mention extremely kinky. Unfortunately for viewers, it all takes a very sour turn when he gets overly Sadian, or perhaps more to the point, Emmanuel Arsan-esque or Roger Vadim-like, breaking things off when the going is good, leaving her miserable and dejected while he goes off on a loveless, passionless round of Tinder sex. When one of these leaves him drunkenly staggering in front of a bus and therefore crippled, Senye returns pulls a misery to ensure he stays that way, and goes full on Venus and furs on his ass. Apparently he likes this enough to marry her, finally. What the fuck is wrong with this guy? Or for that matter, Polanski. <laughs> anyway, back in the current timeline, Grant's wife gets pretty hot and heavy with Senye, which despite pushing them both into this, pisses Coyote off, and he shoots her for it. Grant and Thomas presumably return to their loveless marriage, although only fanfic can say whether they loosen up after this experience or remain icing up tight from here on out. You really enjoy the first half of this film, and even the ladies' dance floor scene towards the end, but unless you got some serious issues, nobody will enjoy where Polanski ends up going with all this. It was not a uh, popular film in, 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 in the box office. You know, it costs $5 million. Uh, USD, and it, you know, it only made less than two at the time, but I think word of mouth, especially on the uh, the uh, legal uh, tape trading market, you know, that was still a thing in the early 90s, uh, videotape trading before DVDs, and uh, people said, you gotta see this fucking Polanski film. <laughs> no. Well, the first half is really hot and horny. Yeah, it's very European. And then European. it just goes right down the toilet. It's very yeah. European, and it's it's very, I guess they pushes boundaries, but... Close enough. I mean, enough. this side of a Ken Russell film, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, it's close enough. Ah, you know, Peter, I always thought Peter Coyote was odd. He was, there was a time when I used to get the Peters mistaken for each other, Peter Coyote and Peter Weller. I know they look entirely different, but they 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 had this acting niche. <laughs> well, they had a persona that was cold and icy, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until wasn't until Weller got better roles and more high profile pictures that he superseded this guy. Peter Coyote just wound up making movies as like this. The, the role his roles always contain bitterness. I wonder how much of you know, spilled over into that. The, the cinematography here is by Tonino Delacoli, who did a lot of Italian westerns, and the music is by Vangelis. Ooh. So, I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff behind the scenes as well, but it's not a fun movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, you won't believe this, but I did not bother to rewatch The Remains of the Day. I always hated this fucking movie, but I know it had Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, and I saw it when it came out. 
And I that's actually probably the main reason that I remained despising Merchant Ivory films, just sitting through that one among one or two others. So uh, did you need to cover that one? It's a biggie. Yeah, we should mention it. It's yeah. uh, you know another James Ivory is by a, based on a novel by a Japanese writer, Kazuo Ishiguro. Uh, Mike Nichols co-produced this thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, James Fox, Christopher Reeve, Michelle Lonsdale. I mean, a lot of interesting people in this. Uh, this is that kind of movie that will make you slit your throat in the bathtub. Because <laughs> this is one of those, you know, post-war Britain things and the wealthy don't know what to do with themselves. And there's class things, uh, class um, wars, those who went to war and those who didn't go to war. And then there's stuff like stories about people who were Nazi sympathizers when the Germans came very close. It's a very, very, they try to deal with politics too. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I haven't read the Japanese source novel. Is that what it's all about? Or did somebody rewrite the thing and completely just take the original story? I don't know. Uh, I did rewatch this, and I was like, oh, jeez, I'm going to kill myself. Exactly, right. That's why I didn't bother. I'm like, no, I'm absolutely not. I, I will not put myself through some things voluntarily again. <laughs> yeah, four weddings and a funeral is fun. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't say that, but yes. Uh, so, 1994, four weddings and a funeral. More fun. More fun than that, for sure. Mike Newell gave us The Awakening, which was reviewed over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com. And Precious Little Else drops this wrong-headed cross between the sensibilities of a Python knockoff, a la our Jamie Lee Curtis shows Fish Called Wanda and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, where Grant ignores good friend and far more appealing Kristen Scott Thomas of the first Mission Impossible, Bitter Moon, and apparently that subpart Tomb Raider remake. Do you know what Alicia Vikander was in that? Yes. I saw the trailer, and that was enough for me. <laughs> Looking pretty damn good in a bob, and who admits to him that she's been carrying a torch to the guy for years in favor of, hi, y'all, plenty of mileage Andy McDowell of Greystoke and uh, that shitty Brat Pack come yuppie film, St. Almost Fire, and that's about it, who sports a perfectly hideous, frizzed-out hairdo, and in their big scene together, relates and rates every one of her 32 lays. Holy shit, tramp stamp alert. So, like Michael Sarah chasing after, quote, cool for Elizabeth Winstead when he has the adoration of the far cuter Ellen Wong and her family mind, the entirety of this film is Grant attending his various friends' weddings and the passing of one of his more colorful and boisterous pals, and despite her getting married, divorced, and sleeping with even more folks between, he's still lapping her like a hound dog. Mm -hmm. Holy shit, man, have some self-respect, not to mention taste. Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson of our trio of Bond shows and our Sean Connery shows Never Say Never Again, and Simon Cowell, Alistair Crowley from Bruce Dickinson's Crowley, a.k.a. The Chemical Wedding, also appear. But this one's just a fucking mess. I mean, even if you compare this to much-beloved junk like When Harry Met Sally and its public fake orgasm scene, this is what the film has to immortalize it? McDowell drolling her way through her decidedly extensive history flat on her back? Holy shit, I hope he tested for VD after this. No, you... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big Andy McDowell fan, but she she's done a couple things that like okay. What Groundhog Day? <laughs> is she not? I don't remember. Yeah, I think she was. Yeah. And the same thing goes for Kristen Scott Thomas, but this is like. Kristen Scott Thomas looked good here. Yeah, I she did. That. She did. Yeah. What I can add to this is that it's like this guy really doesn't want to get hooked up with anybody. No. Which might be saying something subtextually, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and, Going and, back to Maurice. <laughs> yeah. Right. And. and 
but then becomes slightly obsessed with a woman who wants to fuck everybody. I, I, yeah. And has. <laughs> so, and has, yes. It's a very straight, you know, not this time period, though. Yeah, I'm glad you brought those movies up. Yeah, it's, it's, mm-hmm. um, <sighs> there are a lot of interesting mid to late 90s. There are a lot of interesting British movies that were kind of like, I'm not going to say pushing the envelope, but sexually they were provocative in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So, 1994, Sirens. Mm. Alcee no credits director John Duigan directs a film filled with Alcee's like model Errol McPherson, whose only other film of note was the uber gay Joel Schumacher opus Batman and Robin, and Kiwi Sam Neill of Jurassic Park from a Michael Crichton show about some Alcee painter of local fame. Nobody else really ever heard of this guy, but they did. A vicar Grant and semi-cute but ridiculously uptight wife Tara Fitzgerald are sent to visit artist Neil and his free-loving daughters to make sure he doesn't make a church commission in his usual horny style. So why hire the guy? It's all one big excuse for Fitzgerald to loosen up and start exploring her sexuality with the girls and a supposedly blind handyman type straight out of a shitty Harlequin romance novel. Grant's response is schizophrenic, first encouraging her sapphic indulgences, but then flipping out on Neil for painting her as one of his sapphic nymphs from that very encounter that Grant peeped on. The former response gets him laid, she tamps down on the ladder, and starts playing footsie with his hard-on in a crowded train compartment. I miss doing that at wrestlings with a wife. <laughs> Everybody's happy, including all their cabin mates, who pretend to be asleep while smirking at them being naughty. It's cute, but stupid and extremely predictable. McPherson can't act to save her life, and nobody has anything to do acting-wise save Fitzgerald, but if you're not some religious right asshole or prude, it'll bring a smile to your face as well. I did appreciate their live-action recreation of Waterhouse's Hylas and the Nymphs, and the last half hour more or less makes up for the glacial first hour prior. It's funny, they didn't know how to cut the... I remember the trailer for this, I would see it everywhere, and I'm like... Is this about sexy mermaids? <laughs> and it turned out to not be. No. Uh, of note, Portia de Rossi actually married Ellen DeGenerate. Yes, that's later true. on. Ellen so DeGenerate. <laughs> no, I got no. Ellen did a lot of cool stuff, and and I don't have a problem with it, but I did hear she's a real bitch for people who worked on that show. Y- yeah, I, well, I was going to follow that up, but she did a lot of cool stuff by having them. Uh, early transgender people on and having um, actors and actresses who... Wasn't she the first one that had like a daytime talk show that literally came out on it? Yeah. Yeah, so... And, and she had actors and actresses who were like, I don't know, like... Let's say Hugh Grant was on there while he had... He was going through his public ordeals, you know? She would have people on not to put them on there and make fun of fools of them. She had them on there because she's like trying to help them out because she yes. knows sometimes people had a tough time and she had some unusual music guests but yeah in the later years you know you know they said oh she's a troll freak and blah 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 well you know when you're no longer on tv people come out and say a lot of shit you know yes <laughs> so i don't know i've not had any- exactly it's it's rumor mill who the hell knows but yeah but um so anyway you know seeing this movie like wow so portia de rossi is kind of high i can see why <laughs> carpet munching time so, uh, not a <laughs> terrific film. Uh, no, but it is. There is a mild amount of sexuality in there that's enjoyable, and and the message overall is pretty good. It basically just says loosen the fuck up. <laughs> did you see the next movie? It, it was a lot of fun. Taunt Restoration. Yeah, I did not see that one. Yeah, I I liked when when Robert Downey Jr. was like doing these really good British accents. Really? Okay. Yeah. I kind of like him anyway, just for Iron Man was always fun. 
Yeah, and I like the things he's doing. Now he's pushing something to uh, on on the internet to safeguard your children and and uh, you know when they're you know on TikTok and Facebook and stuff you know mm-hmm. so you know somebody doesn't try to. I've been watching his ads; they're pretty good. He even wears a wig now because he you know, he shaved his head bald because his kid. Well, I don't know how old his kid is. Twenty something, thirty. Because <laughs> his kid said. On a dare, I, I think they did a bet or something for some some charity or something. I said, shave your head. He said, okay. So, <laughs> anyway, Robert Downey Jr., Sam Neill, Mike Ryan, uh, David Thewlis, <laughs> that guy's so intense, Ian McKellen, and Hugh Grant a lot later on in the chain. I watched this thing, and, and it's uh, it was about a doctor who services – well, not that way, services <laughs> – a doctor who serves who serves King Charles, played by the second, played by Sam Neill, and this is in the uh, 17th century. Okay. And it's about exploration of uh, medical sciences at the time. So we have, you know, we're dealing with sanitariums, people getting sick. So they come up with a thing called consumption, and you know, then the plague hits. It starts off. Well, consumption is tuberculosis, basically, isn't it? Yeah, well, they didn't know what it was back then. This is yeah. the 17th century. They <laughs> <laughs> have consumption, buying the witch. <laughs> and that, that comes up, too, in this movie because they didn't know how to deal with things. Percy Bysshe died of it. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Suddenly, I remember just being so depressing, but in a good way. <laughs> in a good way because I thought it was well done. They actually burned the fucking city because they can't figure out how to stop the plague. And, and uh, some cast members survive at the end, but it's just like, how depressing can you get? <laughs> and um, there's another huge box office bomb. I, and I'm sure Downey didn't need something like this at the time. But, hey, what are you going to do? Did you see Sense and Sensibility? Yes, I did. It's actually funny when you talk about Downey because, like I said, I didn't really pay attention to him at all with the stuff like saying it was fire and all that crap. It's a horrible movie. Yeah, yeah. But when he started doing the Iron Man, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, this guy like reminds me of myself. And apparently uh, one time we were at this thing, a bunch of us getting together doing some tabletop, and a fellow is an artist I know, and he drew a picture, and I'm like, is that supposed to be me or is that Robert Downey Jr.? And he's like, no, that's what you look like. So everybody's like, yeah, you know, the take us a call. I'm like, yeah, sure. I have no problem with him. He's not a bad looking guy. But yeah, apparently they, they thought I look like Robert Downey Jr. So whatever you well, say to him now. I haven't seen you in a while. See, so you could be like Robert Downey Jr. Exactly, now. right? So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> You'd like that. Hey, hey, no problem. So anyway, yeah, Sense and Sensibility. It's like, it's like, it's like. <laughs> People say, hey, you look like Bruce Willis. And then, yeah, after a while, it's like, well, thank you. It's a compliment. Now I'm like, damn, I'm depressed. Oh, well, now, yeah, but I mean. Well, Bruce is sick. I you kind of do look like him. Well, thank you. <laughs> I also think you look a little bit like Lou Reed, especially in your younger days. But, yeah, same idea. I did. I did, didn't yep. I? Uh, so, anyway. I hear my younger days. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said your younger days. But... <laughs> Ang Lee. So, yeah, modern-day depression king of cinema, since Egmar Bergman is dead anyway, Ang Lee, who gave us stuff like The Ice Storm, the worst of the many attempts at a Hulk film, gay cowboy film Brokeback Mountain, and junk like Life of Pi, drops his rather Merchant Ivory-esque take on Jane Austen with Merchant Ivory and Kenneth Branagh's Shakespeare film standby Emma Thompson, who at least was excused by being married to the latter. She's on her own for the rest. Thompson is the eldest and arguably wisest of three formerly well-off daughters left destitute and at the mercy of their elder brother and his nosy, selfish shithead wife. When Thompson starts to get close to said wife's foppish, milk-toast brother Grant, 
she gets her nose all put out of joint and does everything possible to sabotage their budding, mostly intellectually oriented romance. Some other people in their parlor conversation circles bring along a lower class girl who claims she and Grant have been, quote, secretly engaged for some time, which is eventually brought to light and results in his being disinherited. In typical Austin style, there are letters and rumors of people getting their knickers in a bunch over nothing, like when they hear said girl got married to Mr. Farrar's excuse it's Grant, but it was his brother who still had money leaving Thompson and Grant free to marry into poverty, especially since his big career move is to become, wait for it, Sirens fans, a vicar. You also get folks like diehard daddy Alan Rickman and Spice World cameo come old lady TV hero Hugh Laurie, <laughs> a.k.a. House, Kate Winslet, who just come off the asinine but much praised young lesbians and matricide affair heavenly creatures, sort of a gender bender take on the equally atrocious Brooke Shields bomb endless love, really, and would soon fund her retirement with the awful but strangely beloved James Cameron shitfest Titanic, but do little else of note. Lee, who'd redeem himself momentarily with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, would, as noted, continue to further cinematic lows and incessant Oscar buzz, which is really one and the same thing. But thankfully, Grant would continue to far superior work in the coming decade. If he'd remained in England filming shit like this, I certainly never would have brought him up as a subject for coverage, I'll say that much. No, I, 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 there's nothing I can really add to it. I mean, you said everything I, I already thought about. Yeah, Ang is very interesting, because he's, he's, uh... <laughs> Uh, wait, uh, he's, he, yeah, he's Asian-born, Asian-descent filmmaker, mm-hmm. and he started out with these really hardcore eat-drink-man-woman-the-waiting-banquet, you know, mm-hmm. these kind of Asian-centric films, which got good notices. I, you know, they were all arty independent pictures back in the day. We all saw them. He did this. Then he followed up with The Ice Storm. Oh, yes. And, and which was rough. That's mm-hmm. a rough movie. And then surprised everybody in the world by doing a martial arts type thing, a wushu type thing, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Which is actually very good. It's very there. good. And, and 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 it's like, okay. And then he does the worst Hulk movie of all time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then and then he did Brokeback Mountain, which my ex-wife really wanted to see. And, and, and <laughs> no, I, I did not get hard watching it. So, <laughs> although I thought it was very good. I, I mean, yeah, I know. Oh, uh, don't fuck me. I thought it was very good for what it was. I mean, dead, sure, cowboys fall in love. But hey, look, they're out in the range all by themselves, you know, all dirty and stuff. There's no women around. I guess that's, you know, that's it's like being was, in prison. Prison yeah, rules. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, um, but, you know, I don't know. Anyway, um, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Oh, so uh, I did not waste my time again voluntarily on nine months when he, like, married somebody who's pregnant or some shit. I don't care about that crap. So the uh, next one I went to was 1995, The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain. Very arty. Yeah. Me Too superhero Harvey Weinstein produced this unfunny, unlikable stinker from a no-name director named Christopher Monger. If you ever saw the worst of the Simon Pegg Nisk Frost trilogy, Hot Fuzz, or that old Beast episode, Moraine, you know exactly what you're in for. Grubby, stupid English hicks, whose big tourist trap mountain is officially reclassified by a visiting cartographer as a hill, which sends the town into an uproar. 
Since Gran is only there for a day, they keep conspiring to delay his departure in various ways, while we get endless scenes of the same people marching with wheelbarrows of dirt to make the hill a few feet higher to meet the official classification as a mountain. As one of the tricks was to sick sorta cute if unspectacular Tara Fitzgerald of last year's sirens on him, he winds up marrying her and staying in the village with all these subnormal intellect low culture backwards (laughs) buffoons. Oh ho ho, what's a ripper? I swear, what kind of pretentious art house ass do you have to be to find this amusing, or even watchable for that matter? I'll be seeing these dim bulbs hauling dirt over and over in my nightmares for decades. Hell, it felt like that already. Was Monger using the same footage over and over again? Awful. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, Hugh Grant did well. He tapped into that art house thing. You know, classified as a romantic comedy, not. It's no. not, you know, it's, 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 it's a strange, you know, uh, very British centric, you know, there's a lot of British comedy that's not funny. You know what it reminded me of too? I just thought of this now. Uh, the one that Peter Davidson used to be on, uh, well, creatures great and small, mm. same kind of shit, but not, that was better. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say not funny, but there's a whole thing of British comedy or British satire where, this kind of thing is very popular. I don't know what the hell you would call it, because it's neither satiric or neither funny. <laughs> um, but they seem to create or fabricate real life events which never existed, and and create these huge stories built around them. And you're like, okay, this is. I'd almost rather watch a Merchant Ivory picture than have to watch this one again. <laughs> And it's true. He keeps using that same damn footage. I don't know how many times you see these people wandering through the, you know, it's the nights or whatever it calls the dusk, pushing these fucking wheelbarrows full of dirt. It's like, is this supposed to be funny? Anyway, like I said, it'll be in my nightmares for years. 1996, Extreme Measures. Michael Apted, whose only notable film was our John Belushi show's surprisingly good Continental Divide, gives us this weird film, one of only two films produced by then-girlfriend Elizabeth Hurley of Austin Powers and the Bedazzled remake, mm. where Hugh Grant is paired with Prime Cuts Gene Hackman in a coma-style thriller, and we covered that film in our Michael Crichton show. Hack composer and Oingo Boingo frontman Danny Elfman drops his usual subpar scoring, and Kimberly, the breast is yet to come, Guilfoyle's post-op they-them persona Michael is on hand. No, I have no idea who this guy is either, but I thought there's a lot of Guilfoyles running around out there. Drant is a doctor whose patient dies of suspicious causes, and when he investigates, it turns into the net from our Sandra Bullock show. His house gets raided by the cops, drugs are planted, he loses his medical license, and all his friends walk away from him. Luckily, some bums take a shine to him and bring him to their shantytown in the city sewer. Shades of our Donald Pleasant shows raw meat, if not chud. And he learns Hackman has been experimenting on the bum community (laughs) in some weird attempt to grow new nerves to end paralysis. The increasingly Ruth Buzzy look-alike Sarah Jessica Parker is, fl- <laughs> <laughs> is floating around here for no apparent reason because her brother is a cripple, so she's in on all this with Hackman. I have no idea. This is not a good film by any standards. It's trying to be a Brian De Palma or Michael Crichton film, and we did shows on both men, and veers off into David Cronenberg territory for no apparent reason. What the hell is with that fucked up thing where Hackman claimed he shot or did shoot Grant and severed his spine, only to use him as another test subject for his weird drug? I'm not even sure if that was real or not. Who cares? This film kind of sucks. It's unpleasant, and both Hackman and Parker are distinctly unlikable here. Grant is fair, but he's not even as good as Paul Dr. Who again in the similar paper mask, so it's a good thing he didn't stick to suspense crime drama. Yeah, it's... It... 
Yeah, it's very similar to uh, the movies you mentioned, Coma and, and the other. And it's probably one of the last pictures that Hackman did before going into retirement. And yeah, it's it's weird. It's goes into some unpleasant territory. Mm-hmm. In a way, in a way though, it's probably a movie more people should know about because you know while neither of us are saying it's a movie you should see, if you like people like Cronenberg or or you know the movies we just mentioned, name check, you might want to try to find this one because it kind of like fell off the face of the earth. I think. Yeah, it's a medical drama slash you know conspiracy theory. You know, this is well, kind he's of a, mess, he's but... a mad scientist, and it's like yeah. you know, it's like. He's not organ harvesting for, for for rich people, but it's mm-hmm. along those lines. Yeah. So, 1999, Mickey Blue Eyes. James Kahn of The Killer Elite and Burt Young of everything from Aron Pulaski show's Chinatown to Damiano Damiani's Insane Amityville 2 and Blood Beach are the monsters in this likely oddball take on a rom-com. Once again, and for the final time, produced by Grant girlfriend Elizabeth Hurley, albeit to decidedly better result. This one comes from a Kelly Macon of Cynthia Rothrock Bolo Young Action Oddity Tiger Claws, and you can check out my career-spanning interview with Cynthia Rothrock over at Third Eye Cinema, where art dealer and auctioneer Grant wants to marry a pretty girlfriend Jean Triplehorn of Basic Instinct, but she refuses because Daddy Khan is a mafia don. Of course, he probably winds up involved with a money laundering scheme, party to a self-defense murder, burying the body, and worse, but it's all rather lighthearted and silly with the expected happy ending. You wouldn't expect this bit of nonsense to actually work, but I was surprised to find myself enjoying this, with Grant and Triplehorn rather likable throughout. It's stupid, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, Jean Triplehorn, wasn't she in... What was that costume thing? Water roll. And I remember... I got delayed so lo- so many times. Waterworld. I'm getting to the point here, and I I always had a thing for Jean Triplehorn. I mean, yeah, I thought she was attractive, and she was kind of different. And 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 somebody said, Lou, you got to see the work print for Waterworld. They're not going to release this. I'm like, why? You see, oh, they're on a ship most of the time, and Costa actually had her urinate in a bucket. And I'm like, they're not. This is not going to make the final cut. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Suddenly, I didn't like Gene Triplehorn anymore, because I guess it's not one of my things. But anyway, it's a surprisingly likable film, this one. Yeah, I was actually really like, what? Really? Okay. I wasn't expecting to like it at all. So, 1999, Notting Hill. Clearly the film that directly inspired the later and far superior Black Books. This one even features that show's star Dylan Moran in a bit part. This time is the inept book thief who then gets an autograph from and tries to pick up famed coke fiend Julia Roberts of the Ocean Eleven's films from our Elliot Gould show. Like Black Books, Grant is the owner of a tiny, not incredibly successful, and overly specialized bookstore. He only sells travel books, if you can believe that. Whose assistant and roommate is a misanthropic moron that perpetually screws up his life, a Reese Efans of no note. Being Grant, he's not the irascible Moran in essentially the same role, but that also makes this a rom-com rather than a laugh at slacker types banding together because they have nothing else. Roberts, someone involved must have really been kissing her ass because she's the perfect, universally beloved, irresistibly desirable global movie star celebritard, dodging the paparazzi and distrusting the motives of any and all comers. So for whatever reason, she patronizes his bookstore, you get the Moran scene, she leaps, Grant then gets a coffee around the corner and manages to bump into her and dump it all over her, so he invites her to his tiny flat above the store that he shares with scummy, clueless, druggy-type Ifans. 
Despite being full of herself and nasty throughout, she not only goes with him to wash up, but gives him a big smooch on the way out and invites him to come get some more at her hotel to boot. But when he does, they mistake him for press, which he improvises and goes along with, shuffle from one cast member to another for her latest trash Hollywood film, some sci-fi horror thing. I guess as compensation for being a good sport, she invites herself to his evening commitment at birthday party for a family member, and they're all dazzled by her. Admittedly, she is kind of cute, and to her credit, actually admits to all present that she really isn't much of an actress. Meta much? So, now they're sort of involved, kind of like, and they go on an actual date. Unfortunately for her, a bunch of obnoxious businessmen start talking about her and saying how all actresses are whores. Being a decent guy, Hugh confronts them, but, you know, it's Hugh Grant, so they're not exactly intimidated, until she comes over and throws Snark back their way. Naturally, this attempt at gentlemanly chivalry gets him laid, or would have if low-class boyfriend Alec Baldwin didn't surprise show up in town and make his way to her hotel room. After talking down to Grant, assuming or pretending to that he's the bellhop, Grant leaves with the ashtray in hand and a set of blue balls to boot, and that's it for half a year. Of course, he can't get over almost banging a famous movie star, so he's still single, and she comes to his place to hide out from the paparazzi over some salacious nudie pics or a porn film she did early in her career. Who remembers? So now they're finally getting some proper alone time, except for seedy scumbag fans, who's not only a particularly gross third wheel, but shitheaded enough to sell her out for cash and two minutes of tabloid fame. Thanks, asshole. So now she's pissed and plans to leave the UK and stop her career for the time being, but Grant does the Continental Divide and shows up at her press conference, faking being press again, and begs forgiveness despite none of this being his fault in the first place. There's a happy ending, roll credits, and everyone hopes they shot high fans off screen. If this film were recast with someone who could actually act, was in any way likable or relatable, or even merely invested herself in the role, it would have worked rather well at that. Better, recast the hateful, filthy-looking, junkie-type Ifans with the far sillier and more boisterously self-effacing Bill Bailey, who took the same role in Black Books, this would have been a much better film, even with the icy, narcissistic diva Roberts in the lead. Why was she popular again? She doesn't really have the personality of a Bullock, Garner, Lopez, or any kind of rom-com heroine. Regardless, director Roger Michelle never made another film anyone's ever heard of, and this one may be the perfect example of why that is. It's not horrible, it could have been a good film, but there's two people very badly miscast here, and that's what kind of brings it down. I watched it for the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's through gritted teeth. You know, I, I... Yeah. Could you take all the ass-kissing, how she's supposed to be so fucking perfect or something? And there's well, no reactions. There's no emotion. There's there's a lot of movies like this. Or maybe uh, there were a lot of movies like this because in its wake, there were a lot of movies like this. I don't know. But watching this, like, aren't there like a million movies like this? <laughs> <laughs> it could have been the first. It was very popular. So yes, it was. It's possible. But the only thing you could say is, like I said, the script is fine for a rom-com. You've got some Black Books people here. It very clearly is what became Black Books. Grant is fine in this thing. Roberts is pretty. That's as far as you go. Mm. After that, it's like, oh my God, what a fucking disaster. So anyway, 2000 small-time crooks. Ugh. Unfunny and annoying Carol Burnett wannabe Tracy Ullman from our Whoopi Goldberg show's Jumpin' Jack Flash is the beefy, abrasive, almost Diana Doors-like wife of a long-past-his-prime Woody Allen in this abject turd of a comedy heist film. Now, what the fuck happened to this guy? I mean, he always had absolutely terrible taste in women. Diane Keaton, questionably aside, I mean, clinically neurotic Louise Lasser? 
certifiable lunatic Mia Farrow? And we won't even get into the whole Sun Yi situation. But this is a guy who had a clever, intelligent, relatably grounded stand-up comedy career. Watch him on old shows like the Smothers Brothers before he started making films. He was like a nebbishy, sex-obsessed Dick Cavett without the pretentious vibe. He was probably the most New York of New Yorkers back when that still meant something. Then he kicks off his career with what is still to this day the funniest J-Men Forever slash Mystery Science Theater 3000 reworking of a Japanese spy slash crime picture ever done, What's Up Tiger Lily? Strangely, the original film, Kagi no Kagi, or Key of Keys, still remains unleashed and unsubtitled. Mm. I don't understand mm. that. It looks good, though, I'll tell you that. He proceeds to drop a decade-plus run of genuinely funny, actually witty films. Take the money and run. Banana, Sleeper, the bizarre comic satire of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, Love and Death, Annie Hall, Manhattan, even Stardust Memories from our Charlotte Rampling show, and very debatably including his last gasp, A Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, which at least was watchable. Oh, and Everything You Want to Know About Sex, which we addressed in our Burt Reynolds show, which other than Interiors was probably the worst thing he released before, the similarly questionable aforementioned Capper. I always say that I drop off the Allen train at Manhattan. But a weird obsession with that turgid, bleakly lit, suicide-bidding Ingmar Bergman led to first the absolute bomb interiors, then the proto-Forrest Gump Zelig. And while the former gained him much approbation, the latter was a critical hit. So he felt enabled and justified to stop being funny and start delivering decades worth of ever more sparsely attended, astronomically more self-indulgent crap that continues to this day. I think you can count the folks who still follow the man and religiously go to the theater to see his films on one hand at this point. So amidst a surprisingly regular release schedule of absolutely unwatchable shit comes this pathetically sorry piece that shows an old grouchy post-scandal Allen poorly regurgitating old routines to no effect save sighs and shakes of the head from the audience. The unlikable Alan Ullman couple are a pair of dumb, low-class crooks who try to pull a League of Red-Headed Men job where they buy a pizza shop that they turn into a bakery as cover just because it's next to a bank they plan to dig a tunnel between. It doesn't work, but the cookies magically sell so well they get rich anyway. Now they're low-class in high society like Ronnie Dangerfield and Caddyshack or Dennis Leary and Cinder Bullock and 2 by c from our Bullock show just without the last or audience identification. Their new 1%er snob crowd laughs at them for being new money and have crass haste in art and decor, so Ullman gets involved with art dealer Grant to refine her taste and falls for him. Naturally, he's disgusted by her, but since she's now a rich fuck, he plays her to further his own ends. Alan sees all this and dumps her. She runs off to Europe, finds out that she was embezzled out of all their money. Alan shows up to reconcile with a watch or some shit that he boosted at one of these parties. They sell it and retire to suffer in squalor under Ron DeSantis and Fortress Disney. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, how clever. Making all this tired retread even worse than the script and leads are a cast that includes unfunny and annoying SNL schmuck John Lovitz, also of our Whoopi Goldberg show's Jumpin' Jack Flash, Michael Rappaport of our Sandra Bullock show's Unwatchable The Heat, and Elaine Stritch of our General Lopez show's Monster-in-Law. I'll be honest with you, I've seen the aforementioned Alan films many times over, and Tiger Lily into the dozens. My wife loved the shit out of Annie Hall, and I grew up with Woody being a name to be conjured with. I couldn't sit through this! I kept forwarding up and doing other shit while barely paying attention, getting disgusted and skipping chapters. You get the idea. It's literally unwashable, and it just leaves you feeling a mix of sorry for Alan having fallen so precipitously, and totally disgusted with him for continuing to produce unflushables like this. What's your take? I know you don't even like Alan. No, I like I like I like Alan up and up until everything you wanted to know about sex 
Yeah, same here. And even that was questionable. <laughs> Although I did like that thing he did a couple of years ago with uh, Owen Owen Wilson, the time travel thing. Uh, guy made so many more. Well, that's the thing. It's just 23 years ago. He does. He works all the time. Yeah. But less so of late because now nobody really wants to. Re- nobody a nobody wants to work with Woody anymore. Yep. Well, not nobody, but most people. Mm-hmm. And B, nobody wants to release his pictures. Yeah, nobody wants to fund them because they don't make money. Nobody goes. Well, not only that, it's the stuff that comes up. You know, the whole Sunyi thing, and they've been together for years. Yep. I don't understand that, but, you know, ours is not to ask questions. If you're hooked up with Mia Farrow, I guess anything looks good to that point, no matter how weird the relationship. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And here's the whole thing. Is Rowan Farrow supposed to be his and Mia's son? I have no idea. Maybe. Because he looks so much like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> And you notice the story there. Yep. And wasn't she pregnant during Rosemary's baby or something when he, like, dumped her? So that might have been it. That might be Sinatra's kid. I don't (laughs) Anyway, so this movie is just – I think he hired Hugh Grant because she was very popular at the time and very good at playing kind of suave kind of roles. Yeah, Tracy Holman has always been abrasive to me. Yes. And and rather, I found Tracy Ullman always abrasive. She had a big following, though. She had a TV show. So did Carol Burnett, and I hate them yeah. both. <laughs> yeah, but, but Carol Burnett was easier to take. <laughs> That's debatable, but yes, I know. I know what you're saying. I don't know. It's that stupid character thing that Whoopi Goldberg did in her comedy career. It's like, why? <laughs> anyway, I didn't like this at all. So, speaking of not liking it at all, 2001 and 2004. Bridget Jones' Diary and Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason. Oh, my God. What the hell happened to the British? From the stiff-mannered Rada crowd that populated the film's television and stage of the 30s to early 60s, to the slightly daffy but lovable, dry, humor and witty crowd that gave us things like The Avengers, Adam Adamant, The Saint, and the classic Doctor Who, to this crass, lowbrow trash and proud of it and on display in films like this is a sea change of wholly unimaginable degree. If you go by online sources, our heroine is both, quote, lovable and, quote, engagingly imperfect. Don't you believe it? Renee Zellweger, only arguably rivaled by the Tilly sisters for specializing in playing white trash in film after film, is the most off-puttingly repulsive ostensible screen heroine you've ever encountered. She's not especially intelligent, witty, or likable. She smokes like a chimney, swears like a sailor, and drinks like a fish. She sleeps around indiscriminately, is profoundly overweight and embarrassed of her body, wears hideous old lady underwear, and says stupid shit in front of large public gatherings. The profoundly asinine script shows her as a low-level admin who, after screwing the boss and then telling him off in front of the entire office, magically winds up as a TV presenter without any experience, fucks it up, but still gets a pass for all her myriad false and unlikability somehow. Somehow, after both insulting the shit out of grumpy Colin Firth, the only link thematically with the film's supposed and decidedly tenuous sourcing of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and former boss and fuck buddy Grant, both of them come back for another go, resulting in a silly fistfight that in the film's only genuinely likable and amusing sequence spills from the street into a posh restaurant where they keep pausing to pick up spilled dishes and apologize to customers. In the end, Zoeger runs out in the snowy street in her skivvies for her supposedly, quote, romantic ending with Firth. Oh, you fault. 
I watched this one with the wife, and we were expecting another silly and amusing rom-com, particularly given Grant's presence in the film's head-shakingly popular acclaim. I enjoy Austin, and this book and its zombified adaptations in particular, so this should have been an easy score despite the head-scratching casting of Zellweger as, of all things, a Brit. And yet we were both horrified by this repulsive woman, the character, not the actress, and mm. couldn't imagine someone as likably urbane and null cowardesque as Hugh Grant, or even the grouchy but comparatively classy Colin Firth, wanting anything whatsoever to do with this crass, cheap, bloated disaster area of a woman, much less go back for round two after she, not they mind, dumps them. Do they have no self-respect as well as no standards? Unbelievable, they actually made two sequels, of which I only subjected myself to the first. Even more unbelievably, said film was so utterly bereft of ideas that it not only trades on the surprising success of the original, but literally resorts to repeating every single supposed last sequence from the original. The bit where her fat, dumpy ass falls right into the camera and her boss rewinds it over and over? Check. The pointless fistfight between Grant and Firth? Check. The misunderstandings, fallings out, and question of which one should she choose, despite already having made that choice in the first movie? Check. Pointless dance numbers and incessant use of old 60s soul music? Check. It's not just note for note, it's literally scene for scene repetition, particularly with regards to the few ostensible, quote, big laugh sequences. Pathetic. Worse, it goes even lower brow, with Grant and Zellweger pushed together in a rough guide style show where they go to Thailand, and when he manages to conjole her into fucking him, they get interrupted by, no, not his American publisher, but a Thai hooker he ordered who we told turns out to be a ladyboy. Worse, he plants a few keys of blow on her so that she gets arrested at the airport and winds up in jail with a big group of bar girls who quite accurately sings Madonna's Like a Virgin, fuck for the very first time. This prompts her anal correction to the more bolderized radio-friendly lyrics and a big asinine jail cell dance number. Yay? <laughs> Back to the intro, this horrifying blind date from hell of a title character actually resonated so much with the modern-day English as to become something of a cultural icon. This, a new generation of low-class pulp crawler Diana Doors types inform us, is who we are. We totally identify with her. Oh my god. I love many a British accent, to be sure from all regions. And Zellweger, for all her character's flaws in that film, was pretty hot in Empire Records a decade or so prior. But if someone like Bridget Jones came on to me, I would find the nearest exit as soon as humanly possible. How the fuck is this a rom-com again, and to compare this in any way to Pride and Prejudice? You either never read the book, or you're just lying to yourself. Abominable. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting, y'all. She's, she's not British. And um, they cast her after they went to, like, 300 people. They were looking for a type, and I don't know what that type would have been. The first film was like, Eesh. you know, you just, just describe pretty much everything I feel about it. The second one, the guys look better than her. In a few short years, she did not age well. This is no uh, comment on uh, women aging uh, and men aging in movies, but there was something going on with Renee Zellweger. I enjoyed her in other things. I really didn't enjoy her in Bridget Jones. This is a complete, what do I know? There were successful pictures. <laughs> the, the first one was produced for around 20 and made $300 million. This one was produced for 40 and made like $300 million. It's, it's, sometimes you wonder, like, did I miss something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially with all the praise given to this. I'm like, 
really, this is what the British culture identifies with. This is a British cultural icon, even though she's not even British. But leave that aside. This character, this movie's like, yeah, this is who we are. This is what we celebrate. I'm so proud to be like this. Ha ha ha. Look, this is me. Holy fuck. You're right, though. Uh, there is. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's the third one. Yeah, where she has a baby or some crap. Yeah, and, and Hugh sat that one out. Yeah. I sat it out because it involved the baby, and I couldn't take these other two. <laughs> well, the thing was, she did some work on her face. She did some Botox famously. Mm -hmm. Famously, I actually did Botox. And it still was a huge picture. Did they repeat every single gag from the first two movies? <laughs> I only watched that because I was curious. Oh, there's a third one. It doesn't have Hugh Grant, but let me see where this goes. And it looked like they, they used, like, special effects or something uh, to, like, slim down her face or something. I don't know. <laughs> she's she just like, some people, you know, they do Botox, and you just know it, you know? Mm -hmm. hey, anyway, so what's next? So, two weeks' notice. We cover this highly enjoyable rom-com in our Sandra Bullock show. Sandy's a social justice warrior lawyer who spends her days fighting the lost cause of taking on rich corporate assholes like the Trumps who buy out every piece of property on earth to fix and flip or gentrify the area so that one building your house suddenly becomes a 70 to 150 person luxury apartment complex. They're destroying my entire city this way as we speak. Grant is the naughty public schoolboy one percenter public figurehead for his dumpy, balding robber baron brother, whose company is demolishing a Coney Island theater come community center to this very end, and when she confronts him in an attempt to halt demolition, he actually hires her, apparently inspired by her spirit. But it's really just to play Girl Friday, picking out suits, comforting him after nightmares and such like foolishness, so she quits her new high-paying gig and agrees to interview and mentor her replacement over the standard two weeks' notice. But when red-headed hot number Alicia Witt gets the gig and turns out to be a social climber who'll fuck the bus for a promotion, the ladies get into a cat fight and Grant and Bullock realize they become more than just co-workers. Robert Klein from our George Siegel and Burt Reynolds shows the owl and the pussycat, and Hooper has a small part as Sandy's father. It's not normal for Sandra Bullock to be upstaged by a co-star, particularly in the rom-com arena, but Grant owns this one hands down, and it's both his best, arguably just followed by his avowed personal favorite music and lyrics, and one of her top three as well. So I really like this film. This is actually one of the reasons I decided to do this show. How could I not like it? It's about Coney Island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I asked you last time how realistic was that. It wasn't realistic. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's um, the combination of these two. They're actually more engaging and fit better together rather than um, than Hugh and Renee Zellweger. Mm -hmm. You know. Yep. Um, it's it's just it's an engaging film. It's a very fun, charming. It's like some of those um, uh, Jennifer Lopez pictures yep. we, we saw. Like uh, they're they're despite going in. Oh, I don't think this is going to work. You wind up getting a big smile on your face. Like you know what? I have fun watching this. Exactly right. And I have fun watching this. So 2003, Love Actually. Good morning. Had an uncle named Terrence. Hated him. I think he was a pervert. But I very much like the look of you. Shit! I can't believe I just said that. It's fine. You could have said fuck, and then we've been in real trouble. I did have an awful premonition I was going to fuck up on your first day. Hurry up, big boy. I'm naked. I want to have you at least twice before Jamie gets home. And a black DJ in a Motorhead 1916 shirt playing schmaltz for the wedding party. Yep, it's one of those goofy anthology things where you get a whole shitload of short stories all mussed together simultaneously to keep the audience interested, like how they always make you wait to the end of the news to get to the story you actually want to hear or get the weather. There's a plethora of odd casting decisions like Kroll's Liam Neeson, future Bridget Jones man Colin Firth, 
Future Death in Paradise man Chris Marshall as a dork who gets lucky when he goes stateside. Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town's Bully Bob Thornton. Never Say Never Again's Rowan Atkinson. Edward Hardwick of Venom from our Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski shows. Die Hard's Alan Rickman. 90's Supermodel, Claudia Schiffer. Sexy Sienna Guillory, Jill Valentine, the second and arguably best of the Resident Evil movies. Doctor Who's Carolyn John of the best and most Avengers-like season of the John Pertwee Doctor Who, which we did a show on. And someone named Alicia Cuthbert, who actually puts the Paris Hilton slasher House of Wax on her resume. The only stories that you'll likely remember here is the Colin Firth one where he proposed to his Portuguese girlfriend in front of the whole village at her father's restaurant, and the rather slight Hugh Grant one where he's Tony Blair hot for the low-class foul-mouthed tea girl. It's so profoundly ridiculous, but cute for the final scene where they're hiding backstage of the kids play and the curtain raises on them making out. The off-replicated Kira Knightley one where the no-name guy redoes the Bob Dylan subterranean homesick blues video is highly overrated, and there's really no narrative reason for him to do that, but hey. It's nowhere near its reputation, and I don't think it's a Christmas movie any more than Die Hard is, but it's one or two of the stories here are cute. It wasn't that bad. I love this movie. <laughs> I love this movie. The no-name guy is Andrew Lincoln. Who's that? Rick from The Walking Dead. Well, see, I don't watch The Walking Dead. So it's a good old 11 guy. years, 12 years, this fucking guy. Jeez. <laughs> anyway, it's okay. I'm not going to take you to task. It's okay. Um, <laughs> so, I love this movie. I, I love everything about how Bill Nighy has this, like, burnt-out, like, rocker. And, and, and... He turns out to be gay for his manager. <laughs> or vice versa. Yes, that's true. And you know, he wants to, like he's he's way past it. You know, he's drinking. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. And they're remaking old songs, just by changing the lyrics. And he even knows it's shit and he's saying it on air. I love that song. Da 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 it's in my bones. Wasn't it the Trogs or something? <laughs> yeah. Love is all around. Yeah. And Bill Nighy was great in that movie about the uh old rock band who um, were making a comeback tour. What the hell was that? Oh, my God. That was a terrific film. Anyway, I can't think of the name of that. Oh, was that the, uh, oh, God damn, The Commitments? No, not The Commitments. This is much better than that. Okay. Actually, so I love, I love this movie. I mean, everything about it. You know, okay, what didn't I love about it? Alan Rickman is a total prick bastard. <laughs> you know, yeah. His wife thinks he's bought something for her. Yep. Remember? Yep. Was that, was that Emma Thompson, I think? I yeah. think it was, yes. And he's like fucking over her. And like, Wait, really? Nice. But but he he's very badly trying to buy something for this girl in the office that he really likes. You know, and, well, she's kind of a hot number of the bangs and shit, but, you know, he should be happily married. And he's like, eh, whatever. <laughs> uh, and, and, yeah, so that that's one episode that doesn't end well, really, for anybody. No. Um, the one with Liam Neeson's kind of bittersweet too. You know, his wife dies, and you yep. know, his, his son wants him to. Uh, it's not for like the singer in his school play or some crap. So it's Spanish. Yeah, stuff. but his son wants him to be happy. You know, it's just that. And uh, I like the one with Andrew Lincoln. I can't wait till El Jafar. Will you please change your name to Jack Thomas or something? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's Kara and uh, Kara Knightley. And uh, I like that episode. Yeah, and, and when Andrew Lincoln holds holds up. That's a that's a fucking heartbreaking one though. He loves this girl, but she falls in love with his best friend. Mm-hmm. You know? And at the at the end of that one, he, he knocks on the door and he shows her all these things and she's like, I already married him you know, like, yeah, Come right. on. That's what I'm saying. Everybody makes a big deal out of it. It's like this doesn't work, there's really no point for this. It worked for me though. It worked for me. You know, the 
I did like the two stories I mentioned, but they're you know it's pretty slight. What's next, pussy so, Well, next up, he actually kind of slowed down in his career purposely at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's a couple of years until he does music and lyrics in 2007. The man who helmed most of Sandra Bullock's best rom-coms, Mark Lawrence, puts Grant in what he claims is his favorite movie role as a washed-up northern soul pop star whose career tanked after his vocalist jumped ship for a solo career, a la Andrew Ridgely, John Oates, or Kajigugu Sans Lamal. Stuck doing state fairs and high school reunions, he seems pretty damn chipper about it, considering, but he's told the work is drying up just when he's tapped to deliver a rush hit for a Britney Spears-type oversexed teen pop star, which could revive his career. Child drug addict and talk show host Drew Barrymore of our Ken Russell Show's Altered States, Poison Ivy, Wayne's World 2, and the absurd Charlie's Angels films is surprisingly decent, even kind of likable here, as the girl hired to take care of his plants who turns out to have a flair for turning out pop song lyrics for what that's worth. I gather the writers never actually heard the vapidity of pop lyrics. Nye-exclusive voice actor Brad Harris makes one of his apparently extremely rare on-screen appearances as the likable longtime manager, and Kristen Johnson of both shitty sequels to Austin Powers, but best known as the tranny alien from that third Rock on the Sun show, I tried once, it was unwatchable, is Barrymore's starstruck fangirl sister. It's cute, it's fun, everyone is quite likable in the cast, and there's a few surprisingly decent songs here. Not so much the new ones that she gives absurd lyrics to, but the old ones that Grant and his band did, which are so dead on, they can easily be mistaken for something like the Blow Monkeys, or better yet, the Style Council. They even did a dead-on vintage 80s video for one, which is included in both the film and slightly less edited in the extras. Interestingly, Grant didn't exactly get on with Barrymore, though you can't necessarily tell from their relations on screen. No. But they have since made up, and do seem to have put whatever personality conflict there was well behind them. I really like this one, and while it's no two weeks' notice, it's easily on the level of a Marry Me from our Jennifer Lopez show, if not several notches better. It's among Grant's best, for sure. No, it's among Grant's best. It, it, it does require you to work a little bit more, <laughs> you know, to pick up the story, you know? Yeah. Uh, did you see Cloud Atlas? Oh, my God. I tried, and I gave up. It's like, oh, my God, this is just so bad. And it's a Tom Hanks movie, which is almost always the kiss of death for me anyway. <laughs> well, it, it, well it's, it's really long. It was 180 minutes. Yes, um, it was. And everybody's multiple characters really scramped us. Yeah, you play like 10 people, mm-hmm. 10 characters. Uh, you know, this is funny because after all the Matrix movies, well, the first three anyway, the Wachowskis crashed in, I think Speed Racer was before this, I believe. Did they I, both go trans, or was it just one of the brothers? Well, they both did. That's why they're called yeah. Lanner and Lily now. Yeah, see, that's what I thought, yeah. Uh, they, they were two big guys, and so now they're, they're big ladies. So they, they hooked up a Tom Tyker who did Run, Lola, Run, Lola, Run, which is uh, a yes. nice German film I really enjoyed. I remember that one, yeah. And uh, I think Franco Potente was in that, and that, that made Franco, like, hugely popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, all three of these people collaborated on directing this, like, nearly three-hour picture about, I don't know what it's about. It's a sci-fi epic. Uh, multiple plots, six errors in time. I mean, they tried this with that Hugh Jackman movie that was really rough to watch. And I mean, you got an oppressive cast. And, and you know, but. It, was it a Philip K. Dick novel? Because it had that kind of like aimless. No, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't. But uh, it was the, the, the novel source was David Mitchell. Okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with it. But so here's the idea. Here's the idea. 
takes place in the South Pacific in the 1850s, Edinburgh in the 1930s, San Francisco in 73, London in 2012, Future Seoul, Korea in 2144, and 106 winters after the fall, you know, post-apocalyptic, 2321. So, I have to fucking... Right? That's that's enough, right? So Jim Sturgis is this thing. Halle Berry, who very, very hot a lot of times. She plays, yeah, I'm, interestingly enough, she plays a Native woman. She plays an Indian woman. And, and she's very, very hot. And I'm like, but I'm, I'm, nobody at the time bothered because nobody cared. <laughs> um, you know, how come an Indian actress is not playing this role? And uh, Hugh plays a number of roles including one in Korean makeup mm-hmm. Asian makeup yeah just like the Peter Lurie days um, there's a lot of that in this movie Susan Sarandon Keith David there's, there's like you know and, and of course Tom Hanks and nearly everything that Tom Hanks does in in this movie is very unlikable yeah he was the BY you know he was and will remain a, you know a big star the funny thing was in uh, which the uh, future Korean thing, Hugh Grant plays, uh, like I said, this Korean big cheesy guy. In the London 2012 episode, he played an actor named Cavendish. But in the future Korea thing, Tom Hanks in makeup, in makeup, is a lookalike for Grant in the 2012. <laughs> yes. This, I think people were like scratching the fucking heads. That's it. it made no sense. I was like, I don't even know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, if it was a Philip K. Dick, it would have been more enjoyable. <laughs> um, I think. I don't know. I like, I'm sorry, but I, I like challenging movies, like uh, challenging sci-fi. I liked really uh, Arrival. And I liked, uh, I liked the new version of Dune. You know, I like something that challenges you. You know, there's a lot of other stuff. I'm just like, off the top of my head without getting too deep. And this had all the merits of challenging you, but it's just like when you go through multiple timelines, and they go back and forth. This is the problem. Mm -hmm. They go back and forth. You're already lost. Yes, like Slaughterhouse Five. Right. And except you have actors playing different roles and different things, and you're just, you know, there was no way they could do this unless they went for a massive, massive re-edit. Yeah. So uh, actually three years before that, was did you hear about the Morgans? <laughs> and I can not blame you for missing this one. Grant reunites with Extreme Measures co-star and the Botox Babs, Sarah Jessica Parker, for this awkward cross between Continental Divide and Kramer versus Kramer, courtesy of, strangely enough, the guy who gave us multiple top-notch Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant rom-coms, Two Weeks Notice, Music and Lyrics, and Miss Congeniality 1 and 2, mm-hmm. several of which obviously were discussed in our Sandy Bullock show. They're a yuppie couple on the rocks who get together for whatever reason, despite this, only to run across one of her pals getting a hit put on them. Now they have a hitman on the trail, and since they're state's evidence eyewitnesses, they get put into witness protection. Sam Elliott of Frogs and the Legacy, and a lady I always had a bit of a thing for, a Kate Bush clone Mary Steen version of Time After Time, our John Belushi shows Going South, and our Sandra Bullock shows The Proposal, are the sheriff and deputy, also a married couple, of the Midwestern hick town that they hide out in. The rest is hoary old city folk fish out of water nonsense, while the hitman tails them down and they're saved by the new pals, which also, being a pseudo-romcom, restores their marriage. Yay? If you ignore all the divorce and reconciliation nonsense, you would have think this would have made for an acceptable, even amusing little comedy, right? 
wrong, boring, predictable. Unless you're a big fan of Ruth Buzzy Jr., um, Ray Parker Jr., uh, whatever the hell her name is, she's a bit hard to swallow as a romantic Sorry. foil. <laughs> Grant isn't given a lot to work with here, so it's really down to effective bit player Steam versions to inject any measure of warmth or likability into this turd. And if you thought Ghosts of Girlfriends Past and All About Steve were the worst rom-coms from big stars of the genre, try this one on for size. So I imagine you didn't even see this one. I actually did. Oh, did you? Okay. I did before you even talked about doing Hugh Grant. Well, you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> I did because... Uh, one night, uh, or skimming through, and uh, looking for something watching streaming. What's that? <laughs> and uh, I know I was on the one of these things we get, and I'm like, oh no, yeah, it's Hugh Grant, and uh, and it wound up being enjoyable. Not bad. Not as good as the other ones directed by this guy, this this director uh, that Hugh did, and uh, the ones he did for Sandra Bullock. But it was enjoyable. I was surprised how fun it was, but it was fluffy fun. So in 2015, he's in The Man from Uncle. Cut rate action film man Guy Ritchie pairs recent DC movie Superman Henry Cavill, also of the sixth Mission Impossible film, which we did a whole show on alongside the two TV series that preceded them, and the questionable Army Hammer of no further credits of note, with cute Alicia Vikander of the same year's Ex Machina and the truly excellent Olivia Sayas miniseries Meditation on his earlier work of the same name, his personal life, cinema, and midlife crisis, that is Irma Vep, and that really needs a Blu-ray release ASAP. That's great stuff. In this highly entertaining spy film slash comedy, that's just as good if not better than concurrent fare, like my personal favorite of the Mission Impossible films Rogue Nation and the Sandra Bullock-lit Ocean's 8. There's really not much else to say about this one, but it is lots of fun. I always enjoyed this one. We saw it in the theater and have watched it several times since. I like this movie. I mean, oh, and he was barely in it, I should also say. He's, he shows up at the end as the British. You don't want to give too much away, but he ends up being, quote, one of the good guys, if you want to call it that. Mr. Waverly. Yes, Mr. Yes. Waverly, right. Yeah, that was the old part that, um, oh, gosh actor who famously portrayed him in the TV series. Yeah, I mean, who thought? We talked about the man from Uncle a long time ago, mm -hmm. although I don't think we ever did a show on no, it. No, we, we covered a lot of shows like it when we were doing all Eurospy and all the Avengers shows, yeah, things like yeah. that. So we mentioned it several times. But. We mentioned it several times. It's kind of, you know, there were, there were a couple of years. They, that was back in the day when TV series would make in a, a season mm -hmm. about 30 episodes so like when you when you you know as opposed to the uk where they did about six to ten right. you know and nowadays even here in the united states it's like you know we don't get that you know nobody wants to spend that much time yeah so that you know that's why you know let's say between 64 and 67 i think that was the time of the original man from uncle yeah it's like i don't know 200 episodes it's fucking crazy mm -hmm. and that starred robert vaughn and um the, uh, the behind guy uh Help me out. Oh, uh, David McCallum. David McCallum, yes, thank you. So, I mean, who knew? They've been talking about this. This is like, you know, every couple of years, this mention of they're going to bring something back, something beloved, something you actually might like, even if you're not crazy about it. And you keep saying, yeah, I'd like to see that. And here's the thing, then, who knew this would work? Yeah. There was actually people were like, I remember prior to this movie coming out, the 2015 Man from Uncle. I remember people saying, it's not going to work. 
Yeah, when I heard it was coming out, I'm like, ah, that sucks. You know, the, the original series was so-so, whatever, but I don't think it's going to work at all. And then we saw the trailer for it, I'm like, I think I want to see this, and it turned out to be really, really good. Right. They didn't know how to promote this, though. That was the problem. Yeah. And I think I think if the studio um, really knew how to sell this, they, they, they could have done tremendous, because it had a bigger life on home video. Mm-hmm. And Blu-ray and whatever, I got the 4K version. And, you know, I like that. One of the many things I like about the rapport between these two guys, mm-hmm. these two actors, is so good. We knew Henry Cavill was a fucking star with Superman. And this, he's, he's, a, he's you know Henry Cavill can do it. He was so good in this. And and I like, you know what I liked about this? There's a lot of stuff I like about this movie. <laughs> uh it takes place in the 60s, which is great. Yes, it's got that retro vibe of uh, X-Men First Class and, you know, okay, that was a bad one, but the Avengers movie with Uma Thurman. Yeah. And yet it's really done well. Or Austin Powers, you can say the mm-hmm. first one. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't think it's going to work as a comedy, but it does. But it also works as a spy film. So it's really, you know, day glow retro, but it's pretty damn funny and it's pretty damn good. Yeah, it's pretty damn you know? good. So yeah. and, and uh, It was the same year they put out, I think it was Rogue Nation, and we saw both of them. And I was like, I'm not quite sure which one I like better for different reasons, but, you know. Yeah, I know Alicia Vikander, Elizabeth DeBecky, and Hotness. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, well, the Bicky came off a little bit like a drag queen here, but yes. <laughs> oh, all right, yeah. You got to color color things, but um, <laughs> and yeah, and, and Hugh Grant shows up at Mister Waverly. I I I really like this movie. This and it was great that you know he, he got like this big thing. I just wish the movie got more respect, love. Yeah, because a lot of people didn't like it even afterwards. I'm like, well, what was so terrible about this? Now, maybe it was backlash against Army Hammer. I don't know, but well, nonetheless, maybe. it deserved more than it got. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it could be. And I know they were talking about a sequel, but, you know, the reaction was just not good enough for them. They didn't bother. Well, I think I think Guy Ritchie would have did it, but now he can't do it unless he just has Henry and recast the other part, which is possible. You know, you just do something different. I don't know. But it's yeah. possible. What's next? So that was actually the last one I saw, although I may have seen the television movie. Uh, he was in a Doctor Who special on Doctor Who and the Curse of Fatal Death. And apparently that might have been the one where they went through in the future or something. They kept saying, oh, this is the war doctor. And it was Paul McGann. And this is somebody else. And it was John Hurt. So he may have been one of those doctors there. I think that's the episode. And he was also in Glass Onion, which is the second Knives Out film. I was not able to see that. I don't know if it's just not out anywhere, even, you know, non-payable streaming. Well, or... Netflix has it. Yeah, um... see, there you go. It's Netflix. Oh, uh, I choice. And, of course, he's going to be doing Dungeons & Dragons next year, which or maybe he just did, and I'd really love to see that. I've not seen that yet, but I do want to. Well, hurry up, because... <laughs> well, not a theater. I'm waiting for it to come to the streaming. <laughs> oh, okay. No, because no, sometimes, when, even if a movie opens well, and that seems to They have... take it out in, like, a week or two, yeah. Yeah, it's like... I I, I was looking, because, you know, I didn't want to see John Wick 4 immediately, mm-hmm. and then... Uh... I just got so busy with stuff. I'm like, so I was looking last week. I said, I can't find this movie. When is this supposed to stream? It's like crazy. <laughs> anyway, I can help you out because he he worked in Q, worked again for Guy Ritchie in a movie called The Gentleman. Okay. It's an action comedy from 2019, not that long ago, mm-hmm. with everybody. So we have my, Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, Henry Golding, who's in one of these superhero things, mm-hmm. uh, Colin Farrell. I just, I watched this, and it's it's weird. It takes place in, in England, 
And Matthew McConaughey's like this, like he plays a, a guy who's like a drug lord and a gangster. Mm-hmm. And he decides, you know what? I want to retire. I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. But then everybody, and, and meaning everybody, he's like, no, it's not that easy. You got to do, you got to still work, you know, because I make money off of you making money. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hugh Grant is in this as uh, one of his uh, funkies. It's a supporting role, but it's it's really interesting uh, how many people are in this film. And uh, it's a likable McConaughey. So did you see the second glass on you? I did. Okay. I did. And I was a little, I really liked the first one. And I was a little, I, like, they were really on the on the DL what this thing was about. I just thought they were going to some exotic place like Greece and shooting it, you know. Mm-hmm. And this this whole thing was a mindfuck. I really enjoyed it. Thing is, you know, Daniel Craig's character, if you didn't like him in the first picture, you're not gonna like him in this one because it's more of the same, that more effete kind of Cajun version of Clouseau, but more brilliant almost. So this movie is for the uninitiated. If anyone has not seen it, it plays with you because about 40 minutes into it, it goes into a flashback that's an hour long. <laughs> and the flashback is to nothing you've seen before. Okay, you guys with me? So, uh, including how Benoit Blanc, Daniel Craig's character, the private detective, even got on the island. And, you know, we got a lot of people on here. You got uh, Leslie Odom, uh, Kate Hudson. Oh, I didn't even know it was Kate Hudson until the credits. Yeah, it's like that. Janelle Monet, isn't she a singer? Uh, yes. Uh, Edward Norton, who actually was one of the few times I actually liked Edward Norton. You mean you didn't like him in The Hulk? Dave <laughs> uh, Bautista is pretty good in this, and uh, so on and so forth. There's two cameos in here. One, Ethan Hawke and Hugh Grant. And uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant turned up twice, and the first time you see him, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> he's, he's Benoit Blanc's partner okay you know like partner yeah mm-hmm. and and he showed up again later in the picture and i'm like that's interesting so, so <laughs> is benoit blanc supposed to be like a joke like white benoit balls <laughs> no i didn't think about that at all <laughs> you got a dirty mind it's worse than me i do <laughs> <laughs> proud of it <laughs> I'm surprised. I did not think about that. I, 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 I am a dyed-in-the-wall decadent. I'm sorry. I've been a goth for, like, I don't know how many years. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 <laughs> what do you say? Although it's a very sexy movie, too, at times. Uh, it's a very sexy movie in that, uh, for all all you guys out there, Dave Bautista's running around in Speedo. <laughs> you know, most of the picture. And... Uh, He's good. The guy's got. He's, he's he's a decent actor. He's got good co- not cosmic. <laughs> he has good cosmic chops. Cosmic chops. You're probably talking about the um, Guardians of the Galaxy movies. <laughs> cosmic chops. <laughs> cosmic yeah. chops. Yeah. No, he's good in this, and you know, uh, he's fun. And, and but it's it's very weird, sexy moments. And uh, who who is the Asian girl? Oh my god. Uh, it was funny. We. Had- I don't know who she was. 
Oh, duh, sorry, Jessica Henwick. You know, that's hilarious. That's exactly what it was. I was just going to say, last night we saw a news thing. When I guess they had some kind of uh, some fashion thing in the city. I don't know what the deal was, but I know that uh, Alicia Wintower, whatever her name is, uh, that runs Vogue, was there running this thing. And they had a whole bunch of celebrities there. I was only halfway interested because Dua Lipa showed up, and I love her. But Michelle Yeoh was there, too, I think. Oh, I didn't even know that, yeah. She's everywhere couple, lately. <laughs> I was a couple seconds of it on the news. And it was funny because this you know, Asian girl comes up behind them in a red dress, and she's really stood out. And the girl who was, you know, they were talking to her, that was the, you know, whatever, the on-site news reporter or whatever the hell, and the, the people in the studio goes, who's that girl behind you? And she's really stunning. And she's like, the was like, uh, I don't know, she's with, I don't know, one of these stupid new shows, I forget what. And they had no idea, and they kept making jokes like, well, we'll figure out who she is and let you know. And that was her. That's who it was. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, and I was going to say it before you mentioned her name. And I was like, okay, I'll let you finish and I'll say this. And it was her again. <laughs> yeah, she's in the. Actually, she's in Blade Runner Black Lotus, which I guess is, is, is going to be shown on. It's an anime TV series. It'll, okay. They'll probably release it at some point. Mm-hmm. Oh, duh. Iron Fist and the Defenders. She was in Iron Fist? Yes, boss. Holy shit, I remember her. She was hot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that first season, yeah. Game of Thrones, she was on only for two years. But got she was Colleen her. Wing, yeah. Uh, yep, yep. And uh, she was in the, the Last Matrix, Matrix, which I liked. Mm-hmm. She was in The Gray Man, which was a terrific, crazy action movie mm-hmm. from the Marvel guys. And yeah, she's in this, Glass Onion. A Knives Out Mystery. Okay. Uh, and she's absolutely stunning. And I think she's unused. Or I'll, This is a really long movie, too, Glass Onion. And I think a lot of it got uh, left on the cutting room floor because she's obviously the uh, sub-gay assistant to mm-hmm. to uh, this this wealthy woman who is like a servant. You know? mm-hmm. But she's along for the ride. So, you know, she's obviously her lover. Mm-hmm. Um. And I'd like everybody that I know said they would like to see more of her. You know, it was a long movie. Make it longer already. We know there was more to that character. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, that's who she is. Yeah, it's a big mystery. I was like, who is this woman? And after I saw it, (laughs) I was like, oh, that's who it is. As soon as you said, who is this girl? I'm like, that's exactly what happened last night. And you named her. I'm like, holy shit, this exact same person. Yeah. yeah. So nobody knows her, but they're all like, Ooh, who's this? <laughs> right, nobody knows her, but it's like, also, uh, the trailer will be released shortly for the new Willy Wonka film, <laughs> starring Timothy Chalamet okay. from Dune, mm-hmm. your boy Rowan Atkinson, <laughs> and Hugh Grant Ooh, nice. in the role of an Oompa Loompa. You know, it's not even listed in his credits at the moment. They, the last thing they have on it is like they're filming Unfrosted the Pop Tart story. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. There's a there's a still out there, um, <laughs> of him as a oompa loompa. You you you, you oh, know this God. band, the Divine Comedy? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, lead singer of the band, the Divine Comedy, contributed original songs for this version of Willy Wonka. Okay. I guess they're going dark with it, but. Yeah, especially if they get, I presume, some kind of indie band or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the story follows a young Willie. This guy ain't young. He was like 30. 
The story follows young Willy Wonka and his adventures prior to opening the world's most famous chocolate factory. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, Hugh Grant is in that as a Oompa Loompa. Yeah, and he's been making the rounds, you know, promoting the Dungeons and Dragons movie recently. And uh, yes. like I said, you know, you could tell he's gotten a lot older if you stare at him. But otherwise, if you look at him from a distance or look quick, it's like, holy shit, <laughs> he still looks the same as he did twenty some odd years ago. But yeah, you can tell he's starting to get on. You know, just like I think uh, we saw the final episode of James Corden the other day, and Tom Cruise is like, yeah, he's starting to look older. I mean, he doesn't look his age, but it's like. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's catching up with him a little bit, but still. Well, he's 62, but yeah. he still looks great. But exactly. That's what I'm saying about Hugh Grant. It's like, you know, for his age and considering, he still looks pretty damn good. So, yeah. you know, good for him. Whatever he's doing, keep it up. <laughs> well, do you, you remember that about six months ago when, uh, or maybe a little bit more, he was going to these games with his son, mm-hmm. and they were taking pictures of, uh, you, know, you know, he's sitting in the audience, uh, you know, basketball or whatever. Yeah. And, and you know, he must have had some some kind of work done at some point in time. And he's like, didn't even look like him. He looked so heavy. Mm. But, yeah, he started to look his age. But you know what? The guy's jumping off of planes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's, he's, he's jumping onto planes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, go, go, you know, he can't keep doing this forever. You know, at nah. some point in time, your body's going to crash. Yeah, look what happened to Jackie Chan. That's, that was what he was known for. By the time he came here, his back was so bad. He's like, okay, let me start slowing things down. And then he eventually just disappeared. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think that's our show. Yeah, yeah, that is it. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Hugh Grant. Next time, we're not sure. We've got some ideas, but I'm not sure which one we're going to tackle next. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. And, of course, we're on Podbean, uh, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. And you can look us up for several areas under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine podcast. Uh, we're on iTunes, which, if you're particular, ID is 5534-02044. We're on Spotify. We're on Amazon Podcasts and many other places where you find your hopefully fine, but probably not as fine as us for the most part. <laughs> we're definitely unique. I've definitely We mentioned that last time. I've listened to a lot of these things. And it's like, eh, only a few really stand out to me that sound like anywhere even close to what we're doing. So, uh, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, anything else you want to mention to close out? or? No, I mean, one thing I would say is uh, we always would appreciate that when you guys do take a listen to the show, you know, even if you decide, oh, it's not my thing, or or you, or you want to speed up, and met- metrics are always good. You know, numbers numbers are always good. Likes are always good. So, you know, we appreciate if you if you do. Yeah, like shares, you know. Yeah, so yeah, share share the show. Introduce we your always, friends. <laughs> yeah, we always thank people for for taking time out of their day, and you know, and my other thing, my other prog music thing, I put it up two weeks ago, and I was like, I got like a, I got like almost two hundred subscribers, but I only had twelve views. I'm like, did I pick a day where like nobody's paying attention? You know, even the Facebook people, my friends, and my colors of prog page. Mm-hmm. I got two likes, like, so I reposted yesterday, like, hey, I put this up a week ago, and just to remind you guys, I got two more likes, like, okay. <laughs> you can't worry too much about this stuff. I know they like this currency to these people nowadays, but, you know, those who enjoy it, enjoy it, and those who don't, fuck them. And I never know what's going to be popular. Like You, you know, don't. It's it's strange episodes that will, like, really go crazy, or strange posts, and other ones that think, okay, yeah, this is a good one, everybody's going to like this, and it's like, 
Doo-doo-doo crickets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I have a Vandergraaf generator. Those fans are rabid, but I hated the band, so wait till they watch that one. <laughs> I'm going to get lots of comments on that one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those of you out there running uh, little boutique labels, especially the new guys that aren't as, you know, entrenched and have your own politics going on, uh, <laughs> you know, because I know there's certain people that just keep popping up again and again and again and again, every time you see a new release, it's like, oh, let's see, a cop by this person, a cop by that person. And it's always the same four or five people. It's always the same, it's always yeah. the same couple of people, you know. But as you said many times on the show, we are available. And if you want to go listen to 115 episodes of World of Two at this point, you can see that we are damn good at this stuff. So we would be happy to join you on your Blu-ray releases or what have you. Just reach out to us at the Facebook And we page actually or... watch these movies, people. <laughs> yeah, we're not just going off somebody else's whatever. Like I know some people do that, unfortunately. <laughs> it's kind of obvious when you know somebody is just regurgitating God. something else. That was actually one of the big things when I started off doing Third Eye Cinema. I was like, and you still see it now. You can tell that the the company the label or somebody rep put out a press release because you will see it on everybody else's sites. And I mean literally like 25 sites saying the exact same language, the exact same paragraphs, the exact same word count. It's like. Is that all you do? You just take somebody else's press release and repeat it? And somehow, you, oh, yeah, I'm getting a bunch of clicks. What the hell good is that? And actually, that's where I get a lot of people from reps to labels to bands to just, you know, random fans mm. coming to me directly. And this happens every – I mean, I can't tell you how often this has happened over the years, but just regularly I get people saying, you know, it's so great because, you know, keep it true because you're the only place that really tells it like it is or, you know, at least you're honest about this stuff. Even if they don't aren't happy with the way I slam their band or whatever the hell else or their label releases, they're like, you know, this is good stuff because, you know, you're telling the truth or you're telling you know, how you see it. You're being honest. you got a lot of passion. People are just like, I don't know what the hell. I was just lazy and just like, eh, I'm just throw this out there because they said it and, you know, somehow this is going to give me hits. <laughs> really? <laughs> but I repeat well, a lie. I mean, you know, I, and, and neither neither one of us are going to say names, no, but, you know, no. there are a lot of people out there who, and, and they're not young. No, they're not. <laughs> uh, they're not young. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people out there, like, well, I didn't see this on uh, VHS. I never saw it in a movie theater. And, you know, I just saw the new Blu-ray. And they're going to try to, on their TV and or DVD, and they're going to try to you know, legitimize because you didn't get that experience. Okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. But then how are you going to know about certain things unless you've read what other people have written? Yeah. And this is a problem. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a certain amount of lived experience in just anything in life. That's actually why this country, for all its flaws, had this whole thing where to be president, for example, you have to be over 40. It's not just some kind of weird ageism thing. The idea was that you had enough life experience and possibly enough of a career behind you that hopefully your decisions won't be so rash and crazy, and hopefully you won't be so easily influenced by lobbyists and, you know, whatever the hell you, you're pissed off one day and you're just like, ah, screw this, and you just like drop the bomb or something. The idea is supposed to be that you know, you're a little bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser. I mean, it doesn't always come together, but, you know, there's an idea behind that. And it's the same thing here. You know, if you just are talking about movies or music or whatever, all right, so, you know, you might just be listening for the first, you know, this is your 20th CD you've ever heard in your life and you're going to write a review. That's fine, but, you know, 
you don't have the same kind of gravitas as somebody who was out there playing in bands and seeing these things in clubs or, you know, whatever the hell, you know, talking to these people, like living in their shoes, more or less, because you've done this. You grew up with these people. You were at, you were there during these times. So you feel like you were qualified to speak from your memories and your experience of what those days were like, as opposed to looking it up on, you know, Wikipedia or whatever the hell, like, oh, yeah, the 70s were like this. And I hear see that a lot with the younger guys. They will quote stuff that is complete horseshit about, you know, certain decades or things that happened. I'm like, that's not what happened, because I was fucking there. So, you know, there is a measure to which that is lost nowadays. Because, <laughs> you know, the people only remember whatever they remember. You know, the, the early 2000s. Okay, that's great. But then don't be talking about the 70s like you knew it. I mean, you could talk about, oh, I saw this movie here and this was cool or something, but unless you're really heavily researching and you're getting from a lot of sources that, so you can get an idea of the picture here. Like when I talk about the 30s, I wasn't around for the fucking 30s, but, you know, I've watched a lot of these things. I've read a lot of books. I've, you know, all kinds of things. I've had the experience there. I talked to grandparents and old folks and people that were there. I've got a picture of this. If you're just going from, like, whatever the hell is the laziest thing online and grabbing from one or two sources and saying, oh, yeah, this must be how it was, you're going to be all upside down and backwards. You're making a weird patchwork that's not true. So, yeah, that plays into this, too. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Well, anyway, thank you all for listening. Yep. And uh, we will see you next time. I, we have a bunch of people that we talked about. I'm not sure which one we're going to next. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? or? Well, we, we still have some names that we haven't tapped into yet. Mm-hmm. And... Um... Yeah, I know we had, like, yeah, we talked about, I mean, Borgnine is like, I don't know if we'll ever get to that one, but it's, he did a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah, the ones the ones that did a lot of movies can tend yeah. to be problematic because you want to please everybody, so, but you, sometimes you have to cherry yep. pick, and then it's like, if you forget to cover something, then somebody's always going, I don't think I, you guys yep. talked about that. <laughs> you know, and you see like, sometimes you know, like, there's something that I missed in a, a series of movies where we cover somebody, and then I'll mention it in like a show or two later because I actually saw it afterwards. I'm like, oh, you know what? That was pretty good. We should mention it. I know that happened with Coogan's Bluff you know, from our Eastwood show. It's not in our Eastwood show. We talked about yeah. it, I think, a show or two afterwards. And that kind of thing happens fairly often because, you know, how do you guys everything, especially not in time for the show? But nonetheless, we cover what we can cover. And we are just like the Third Eye interviews I used to do were very comprehensive. So, <laughs> you know, I hear, I actually hear a lot of movie podcasts back years ago, and people would cover like one movie, and that's it. And that can be fun, and it can be funny. It's like doing a, a commentary or whatever the hell, or, you know, uh, Mystery Science kind of a thing. Like, ah, oh, let's riff on this one movie. But we cover filmographies. <laughs> we cover careers. We cover lives. So it's a big difference. And, you know, you can't get to everything. All right. All right. We'll see you next time.
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, 
the career, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seeds Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. So how you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's about the same here. So what's up? Uh, uh, still not 100%, but uh, feeling much better. Back's bothering me today a little bit. And then I... Went to the bathroom a couple hours ago, and then my left knee was bothering me. I'm like, what the hell? Jeez. Could be the weather. Like, I was going to say, maybe the weather's getting here, like, bursitis or something. Yeah, like, I don't know where. And to top it all off, I usually check, and I've been good for months, and maybe about a year. I got the worst hemorrhoid. <laughs> well, and I'm it's, not leaving that part in. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> it's smart. <laughs> and it, I... I didn't have it two days ago, so I think it's from stress. all those issues with my stomach, you know? Yeah, sure, all stress and all whatever the hell's going on with your guts. Oh, speaking of stress. Okay, what happened this time? So, you know, Sunday I wasn't feeling really, it was feeling really bad. Yeah. And uh, my wife texted me, you know, because I told her I'm not going to chill her, you know, I don't feel great at all. She texted me like uh, 6.30 saying, her niece is coming over, her daughter-in-law is coming over, her niece is bringing the kid, I said, when? Tonight. Oh my God. Please order. Please order food. No, she texted me late. Nice. I said, Are you kidding? I'm, I'm going to bed. <laughs> Can you order hamburgers from this restaurant? I said, Really? <laughs> then I have to stay up. Right. And wait for the delivery guy. I'm like, I was kind of pissed. Yeah. And I said, You know what? I, I had a hamburger uh, last night. So uh, how about no? All right, order a large pizza. I'm like, <sighs> Okay. <laughs> She shows up about nine. Yeah. She goes, oh, they're not coming. <laughs> well, you can enjoy the pizza, I guess. Well, I, you know, my stomach was really bad. I'm not, I didn't eat much of anything on Friday. Yes. And I'm not going to eat pizza at nine o'clock at night, you know? And so I was like, they're not coming. <laughs> <laughs> I just, so I could have saved, you know, like $25. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they came what, the day after that? Yeah, the day after that. <laughs> Saturday. You know, and... and uh, what's the matter? You, look, you don't look well. I'm sick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not... You know, I, I don't want to entertain you. Know? Yeah, right. And, she, and my wife went to do errands, so I'm stuck with these people. This is... A, my niece is the one who, who went down to Florida and got the, the rear end job. Butt lift or whatever it is. <laughs> The only Asian Latina you ever saw. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear you're still not feeling better. I mean, I was glad that you didn't go to Chiller, especially since you weren't working there. But, you know, with that crazy rainy weekend we had. And it was kind of cold, too. Both of us. I mean, I usually don't get cold. She complains a lot when it's all cold and rainy out. But I was like, geez, I'm kind of freezing myself, which says a lot. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. And It's good not to go out there and get drenched besides. And, and she, my wife, completely forgot that I told her, I'm not working. I went through the whole thing with her. Yeah. I said, with all the stress in the job, I need to get away for two days. And here I'm stuck in the house. And I'm like, great. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> oh, but wait, there's more. Somebody owed her some cash, and her bank is it's far away. Okay. It was raining uh, Sunday. And she goes, can I deposit in your bank account, and then I'll withdraw it. Okay. I'm like, no, 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 deposit it into my bank account, then sell it to her account so she could pay her bills. Okay. I'm like, all right, here's my card. So it was uh, Sunday. Yeah. Late Sunday. She called me last night around 7 o'clock. Oh, I'm sorting through my stuff. I have your bank card. What? Oh, God. She just handed it to her? <laughs> to do that transaction. Yeah, yeah, right? but didn't take it back. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was out of it. And I'm like, you have my bank card. <laughs> How am I supposed to get stuff? Yeah, right. Well, you have food in the house and you have cigarettes. I'm like, so if I wanted to go out to buy something, I can't. Yeah, because she's back up wherever, right, with whoever she's working with. Yeah, yeah, they're they're about an hour away. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, oh, I'll send somebody there with your car. I said, no. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Do you have, like, at least a credit card or something? Can you? I mean, small places won't take that anyway. Most, but, you know. most of them are maxed out because uh, yeah. when she was in the Philippines, mm-hmm. she, she gave me a bunch of funds before she left, but she didn't have enough. And then when she came back, she was broke. <laughs> so I was living on my credit cards. And yeah, what sure. I pay, paycheck number one was paying all my bills and, uh, and you know, the cable, which is expensive, the phone, which is expensive, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then check number, the mid-month check was the rent. Right. You know? Which is and you're like, <laughs> So you're living on, you're living on credit. Yeah. So I, every time I pay a card off, I'm like, Two days later, like, oh, they didn't do the finance charges that I could use $40, which is stupid. You know, and, mm-hmm. So how long is she going to be away without you having any access to any kind of money? She's back Friday night. I guess that's not too horrible if you can get by with the food in the house. <laughs> Don't need to yeah, buy anything. Yeah, but that's not the point. You know, no, like, it's not. It's ridiculous. If it's not raining, I, I like to go for a walk and maybe, oh, you know, stop in for a sandwich somewhere. or uh, Like I looked. <laughs> I looked about an hour ago when I discovered this hemorrhoid, and then I took a nice hot shower. I'm like, I don't have that stuff. Right. I got to go out and buy it. All right, so. <laughs> and it's funny with that. I don't know if you ever had those or, I mean, like I said, it's been almost a year. It's like when you buy that stuff, it lasts, but the shelf life on that is short. Oh, you want like that Preparation H crap or yeah, the yeah. Anusol, or <laughs> Yeah, Preparation H, which yeah. is probably the best stuff. And the funny thing about it is the shelf life is small, and if you if you don't have it too frequent, it's good to have in the house, like teats, uh, you know, Ambisol, you know? Yeah, right. Those are things you got to have in your house. Visine in case allergy breakout and all of a sudden you got red eyes. You know? Exactly, right. You never know if something's going to happen just in life. <laughs> Yeah, so I always like to have those kind of things, you know, and, uh, you know, what do you call uh, the antibiotic ointment, you know, you cut your finger, okay. Yeah, you know, spore or What else happened today? You, you know today was going to be one of these days. And I'd sign on for work at my desk here, my wooden, nice wooden desk, and I said, ouch. What happened? And I looked at my wrist, and I got four bumps. And I'm like, what is this? Is it you shingles? Know, no, it's a fucking tiny spider. Oh, for God's sakes. And I said, are you fucking kidding me? Where did this spider come from? It's and mommy. It, right away, right away, 
I had like these four welts and puffy. You know, I looked online and said, wash warm water and soap thoroughly and put antibiotic ointment over it. And it pretty much went away within an hour. But I'm like sitting there going, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's been a long time. You know, unfortunately, I've been bitten by spiders and had the usual. You get the little red bumps and sometimes it swells up a little bit. Not like what you're describing. That sounds nasty. And it was the tiniest thing. I had to use a magnifying glass. I'm like, are you kidding me? What the hell? <laughs> You probably got so too much then, moisture in your building. I'm just guessing. It could be. It could be. And and um, yeah, I cleaned the whole desk after that with pledge and all kinds of shit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing this. I'm going to clean everything all around it. You know, and <laughs> it's one of those days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I know it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to leave anything with the hemorrhoid in there, but <laughs> there was some some amusing parts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a, you know, part of life for adult males. It is. Yeah. Hey, you know, it shit happens, literally. <laughs> well, that's probably the problem. If you strain too much, that's how you can go from nothing to, like, yeesh. Yeah. Well, speaking of chiller, yeah, they seem to have done well, surprisingly. Despite having nobody there, really? <laughs> well, no, I... They, they, the, the rooms were crowded. and Oh, yeah. No, I, don't, I know people show up no matter what. It's just they don't really get any interesting guests much anymore. <laughs> but with that weather, I mean, you know, you still have to wait outside before you go inside. You know? That's what I was saying. I was like, if you stand out there in that rain and not feeling well with the cold and everything, ugh, forget it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, even when I texted my wife, I said, look, I'm sick. I'm not going. And I said, on top of that, it's, the weather's supposed to be hard. Mm-hmm. And it was. <laughs> and it was. Uh, it was pretty bad. Uh, she goes, well, you won't be outside. I said, well, I smoke. I have to go outside to smoke, so I'll have to bring an umbrella. Yeah, I saw some pictures at night with some of the people. Not a lot of people I know went. I mean, a lot of people I know didn't go. And uh, some staff people and some friends, uh, for whatever reason. I mean, the only one I really wanted to see was Mark DeCoscos. Okay, yeah. Not for his cooking show, but because, you know, I think, I think he's... Because of Double Dragon? Wasn't he in that? <laughs> He's, he's in John Wick 3. He was in this really cool movie called Drive back at the beginning of his career. Not, I wasn't sure if he was even there, but then I saw one person that I knew of from staff who got a picture with him. So I said, okay. I think Friday may have been slow, and it, it didn't even rain until much later in the day because uh, the few people I know that were there were getting pictures of Mike Lowe. You know, oh, wow. From, from the Beach Boys? Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking, there must guys, be no lines, yeah. These guys, yeah. Don't usually do that until Sunday, so I figured it was probably slow Friday. Exactly right. So I woke up Saturday morning and I saw all these pictures. And I'm like, oh, go for you. Yeah, I mean, when they used to be back over Sea Corcus area, we often went on Fridays as opposed to you know the Saturday when it's big crowds and the Sunday when it's just you know the dregs and everybody's trying to get the sales or whatever the hell. Mm. So I mean, <laughs> if it was dead on a Friday, because I know how packed that gets, it's like you got to be kidding me. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, again, you know. You know, the impending weather, location, mm-hmm. location, location. Yep. Oh, God, I hate that location. But what are you going to do? I thought you said they were going to move, but then they didn't. Right. Uh, when I was at the, the previous show in October. Was that the one where they had the bomb scare or whatever it was? And it was just some guy with a cheap, like, plastic gun that he was cosplaying with? No, that one was the stabbing. Oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> that guy was trying to steal a uh, child's cell phone. That I don't know, maybe it was the mother or the, or the stepfather. And... The guy's trying to snatch it, and one of the security guys is an off-duty cop. So mm-hmm. he tried to 
disarm the guy because the guy pulled out a blade and he stabbed that guy. And so, yeah, no, there there hasn't been a um, bomb thingy yeah. for a while. And no, at the last show, I had several different people, let's say associated with the show, mm-hmm. say, hey, Lou, you here? This is the last show here. We're going somewhere else. Do you know where? I said, I don't know. This is the first time I'm hearing about it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want it to be said in October that Lou told me. Mm-hmm. So I made sure by the time a third person or the fourth person told me, I said, it's the first time I'm hearing about it. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know how shit happens. Yeah. Oh, you know, Lou told me. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's what I heard. And I thought by the time three or four people asked me, like, can I give them information? I'm like, oh, it's probably going to be a done deal. It's a good idea. Yeah. Unless it goes further. <laughs> <laughs> To Pennsylvania, you know, he lives near Scranton, okay, something like that. So that would make sense. Yeah, I don't know hotels there, but it would just kill the show because who's going to go to Pennsylvania if you don't have a yeah, car? Yeah, you have to get the diehards to do that kind of crap. Cause, you know, unless you're a Pennsylvanian, who the hell goes out that way? You know, back in the day, Ubers or Lyfts were about twenty something, low thirties to go there. The last couple of trips I made, it was like. 50 something yeah that's a lot of money i used to take from hoboken jersey transit to morris plains and if you just missed that shuttle which has its own running time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's 10 bucks okay it's cheap but if you miss the show there are local cabs but the local cabs charge us almost as much as uber or lyft from that location i'm like i'm not taking a local cab i'll just get uber lyft and they can charge it to my car but even that's like 25 Mm dollars So, and the train is like 15, so it's about 25. It's 40? That's the problem. It's all this crap adds up. All this crap adds up. It was up. like when you and, offered me those tickets last year, and I was looking into it, I'm like, wait a minute. So if we do the Uber, and then it stops at my place, and then it goes to your place, and then it goes there, and then we got to do it back again, or the other way, go over the bridge and pay that fucking crazy toll, and then find parking, or, you know, there's a whole bunch of options I went through, and I'm like, Holy shit, this is really pricey. And forget about the ticket entirely. I'm like, holy shit, what, what? I don't understand the cost of transportation these days. Everything's just like out of the, out of the orbit of normal human interactions. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, anyway. All right, so check this and let okay. me know. Fine.